Well, Russ, I'm going broke. Uh, as, as you may know, the uh, Japanese yen is losing value rapidly against the dollar and against all European currencies, and uh, that's cutting into my uh, CD collecting hobby. I can't uh, buy as many CDs as I normally do. It's not stopping me yet, but uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Oh. I'm guess not going to have any money here. Sorry to hear that. It's, yeah, it's, it's the really lowest sad. in 20-some years, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's, it's bad terrible. timing. Bad timing. At the beginning of our, the second year of our, our uh, podcast, the releases are really picking up. Gotta gotta pick up some of these uh, new CDs, and uh, they're really expensive now. Like the equivalent of, well, it's like two thousand Japanese yen each. Which, mm. um, if yeah, which is well, now it's worth what what like fifteen. I don't know what it is. I didn't pick it up. But if you if you think of the Japanese yen as even with the U.S. dollar, that would be like. Twenty dollars in like um, if imagine if you're in the U.S. and you have to pay like twenty dollars or yeah. you know for a for a CD that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, know? and you like to so, buy from uh, Presto. Yeah, that's what it feels like to to me is what I'm saying is like yeah. I'm paying twenty dollars for a CD for Americans. You know, you like to buy from Presto in the U.K. Mostly, Presto in the right? U.K. I wish they'd sponsor yeah. us. <laughs> Maybe nice. have some money so I could spend it all more <laughs> on them. Be, you know? you've got to be their best customer in all of Japan. I'm sure. I, yeah, I bet they uh, have like a special kind of. <laughs> like a you know section for me there or something I don't know right. they might have some courier guy just waiting to bring your latest purchase you know to the postal service yeah because I, I used to I used to go to them like once a month now it's like once a week <laughs> it's really too much because <laughs> all these great really because now we're doing the podcast there are a lot of stuff I just wouldn't buy if we weren't doing the podcast but I just get them because I do want to hear them and you know I'm thinking about the future of the podcast well, you know, as I suggested to you this week, uh, I think every CD should now be just priced at 10 US dollars. No, I think so too. You know, whereas yeah. there was that one jazz CD we were going to buy, uh, the uh, Uno, one oh, we God. reviewed a few weeks ago. Yeah. And that's going on sale. Now, it's not available uh, in the US yet, as far as I can see. 3,300 yen on Amazon Japan. Yeah, so th so think Americans think thirty three dollars of yeah. yeah what that would be like to spend a CD. That's kind of what we have at the moment, you know. Yeah. Um, no, that's crazy. That's crazy, but it's on an SHM CD, which is a Japanese technology thing. It's basically just a CD made of more durable material. They right. claim yeah. that it's higher quality, but how can it be? It's still the same, well, you know. If it makes you feel better, but it makes you feel better. I I really do question some of these things. I mean, yeah. You know. There's a lot of uh, snake oil in the uh, audio uh, world. Well, so, well, an SACD can potentially sound better because it's just samples at a higher, you know, yeah, sampling rate. At yeah, least it depends most, on the master tape, of course, always. But you know. at least most of them, the care has gone into the recording and mastering. Uh, right. In those, you can usually be assured that the engineers are taking pride in it. But well, I think anyway. that's the case in classical music, because if they're recording it to. Uh, even if they're not doing DSD direct, they still maybe they still got the higher sampling rates. So I think it's yeah. gonna be okay. Yeah, we don't hear too many uh, bad recordings these days. Everything yeah. sounds really good. Yeah, because of the hike in the because of the Japanese of the weakening of the Japanese yen, I've had to halt construction on the cooling tower that I'm building behind my house <laughs> to keep my uh, external hard drives with all my music on them running. <laughs> This is a big problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, um, 
Remember the uh, the Macintosh when that came out in the eighties? It was just this this cool new computer, and you got it, and three days later it overheated and <laughs> didn't work anymore. Mm. And you spent a thousand dollars on it. I don't know. They they fixed that problem by putting a fan in it finally, but uh, they didn't care. They're just yeah. gonna oh, we got this cool new thing. Fortunately, they've got those problems worked out now. Well, they do now. This yeah. is like years later, but yeah, they just put it out. It's, okay, people will buy it, and they did, and it just didn't work. And uh, yeah, with streaming now, you can listen to anything. So the only thing we've got to get these uh, CDs down in price so that people will be encouraged to buy them. You know. Yeah, people. People do streaming. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, don't get too down in the dumps because uh, we've got a nice surprise for you. Uh, the ladies we are do? going to be here to see you, Mike. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. I, I, I already uh, had a call from them, in fact. Yes, you did. Uh, yeah. We've been spending a lot of time with some sexy ladies this week, and we we're going to introduce them to you, our yeah, Some sexier than others, I have to say. Yeah, that's but, true. Uh, was... yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get to that uh, in a little bit. Uh, but we're on episode 60 now, wow. and you're listening to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind bringing you usually six uh, new releases in classical and jazz. And uh, the theme for the jazz tonight is Saxy Ladies, as I've mentioned. And we've got some uh, rather interesting uh, religious and uh, cinematic music in the classical category. Yeah, this, this was tonight. an interesting week, actually, yeah. all around, I thought. Yeah. Lots yeah. of good stuff to listen to, as usual. Yeah. And, uh, boy, the things are lining up. We even have ideas for... Uh, next and next episodes already yeah i've got so, two i've got a two or three episodes planned yeah. ahead so, now too now that all these great uh classical releases have finally uh yeah. come out and are starting to arrive in the mail the mail has been really slow too yeah this here in japan i don't know or at least in, here in kyoto yeah anyway if daniel's listening uh we're gonna get to the ranitsky next week yeah, so we'll have our, a new installment of uh, ranitsky releases ranitsky releases yeah, yeah that's our new uh, one of our new uh um, segments, segments. Right. The show. And we, unfortunately, today, we have to do one of our other segments, which is musical necrology. Hmm. Necrology, of course, meaning deaths in yeah. music. And this was a devastating week. Yeah, a few for, people uh, hit the coda, huh? Yeah, people, um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> for for the, uh, the, the never-ending fermata, I guess you could call it. Or yeah. something. Something <laughs> the like coda, that. yeah. The coda ended. Um, April eighteenth, twenty twenty two, seems to have been a just terrible day for in in uh, music. First of all, well, first of all, on April seventeenth, the day before, um, the Romanian pianist uh, Radu Lupu died. He was uh, seventy six years old, and he really was one of the great pianists of the twentieth century. I have uh, some recordings of him on the Decca label, especially his recording of the uh, Brahms late piano works that. Um, just stands the test of time. It's still, mm. I have loads of these now. In fact, by some really favorite pianists of mine, but that one is still the go-to. Um, really beautiful. I actually got to hear him play live once. He was at oh, wow. Osaka Concert Hall, um, maybe 10 years ago or so. And right. um, he, he he wasn't on top form that night, unfortunately. Like, it wasn't uh. as magnetic as his uh, recordings are. But I was glad I got to hear him. Yeah. You know? But it was it was a it was a good but not great performance. Let's just say that I don't remember what he played either. Um, also, and then when April eighteenth came, and uh, first of all, the um, I should mention the British um, composer 
Harrison Burt Whistle died uh, April 18th. He was 87 years old. It's mm. a good long life, I'd say. Yeah. Um, he, <laughs> he, I find his music to be um, unlistenable, <laughs> to be <laughs> honest. Um, no, not unlistable, but difficult, let's say. Well, okay. he, and he wants that. He's very, it's very complex music. Uh, not, it doesn't really meet you halfway. You really have to uh, go to it. One of those, it. right? Yeah, it was. Mm. It's hard. Um, he did a lot of um, interesting operas on uh, Greek mythology themes, which I really liked. I kind of liked that. Mm. When you have a story and a vocal, uh, like a you know words to kind of help you out, you know the music kind of goes in a little more easily if it's very difficult. If you're just left with uh, instrumental only, right? Well, you, know, you got to kind of figure out some kind of a form that it's taking. I, mm-hmm. At least I do. So that you know, I can kind of, you know, yeah. appreciate it a bit more, mm-hmm. you know. And last, and this is the, the kind of the saddest one, um, is the American pianist Nicholas Angelich. I hope I said that right. Uh-huh. He also died on April 18th, and he was 51. Oh yeah, very I saw young, that. younger than yeah. us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, had a That's great career. He was a great uh, interpreter of Brahms' piano works, um, and. Um, from a chronic lung disease, and I don't know what that means. It's really a, li- a bit cryptic. They said a it's chronic nice lung disease. Vague, yeah. how, how chronic was it? Was it from two years ago? Because that would mean uh, hmm. he's a victim of the uh, recent pandemic. But we don't know. It doesn't say that. Okay. Yeah. But uh, they left it a little too. I understand they want privacy and things like that. Sure. But I'm just curious. It's too young yeah. uh, to die, especially since pianists tend to live very long lives. Hmm. You know, they all go into their 80s and 90s somehow. Well, at least in the 21st, 20th, and 21st century. Rest in peace. Rest in peace, all three. And and um, thank you for your wonderful music, everybody. In most cases, (laughs) anyway, yeah. In most, well, even Harrison Burt was, I may not have appreciated him, but I know a lot of people did. Otherwise, we wouldn't know who he was. Right. But, um, so, yeah. All right. I remain grateful for all three. Yeah. All right. Well, mm. on with the uplifting part of the program with the music. Before we get to that, though. Well, the unlifting part is the next two hours. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. The next two hours. Yeah. Yeah. So before we get going, all the music we're going to discuss tonight, if we've got any new listeners or just to remind our regular listeners, you'll find links for Spotify and Apple Music. Everything's available on streaming this week. And also at the top of the description, you can find a link to the full episode playlist that'll give you all the music in one place that's on Deezer, our preferred Mm. streaming service. Uh, You can also follow our podcast there. Just look us up, Adult Music Podcast, and you'll find uh, the podcast itself with the playlist every week, which we get uh, out on Monday right after the... um, podcast itself the episode goes up so if you want to see what we're going to talk about next week you can find that uh, almost a whole week early Uh, Mm. now if you're listening on a service that doesn't have uh, full descriptions or active links you can always come over to our host site podbean uh, where all the links are easy to follow now if you enjoy the podcast uh, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on Uh, If you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a review, that helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, which helps us grow our audience. And we got a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts this week. And yeah, yeah, 
So thank you to uh, the reviewer there. And we've been on Apple recommendations and also Podbean recommendations in the music category uh, for the past couple of weeks, which is really nice. So I hope we got some new listeners there. Moving in the uh, right direction. I'm glad yeah. to hear it. You can also find us on Facebook. Just look us up, Adult Music Podcast. We've got a page there. You can send us a direct message or leave a comment there. The, I should post some personal photos there, like of my new CDs or something, yeah, so people can kind of see what's coming up or something. Yeah, and the uh, next week's playlist also goes up there. I post that once we've got it set, so you can find it on there if that's more convenient. And otherwise, if you'd like to get in touch, any questions, comments, uh, suggestions for us, our email address is adultmusicpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, okay. All right. Are we ready to to dive into this? I'm trying to think if there's anything else I wanted to. Oh, I I, I do want to mention. Um, uh, my brother was kind of, um, sort of, telling me one of the links on Spotify didn't work this week, and what it was is a link to the um, Hyperion website. Hyperion is um, they're kind of a boutique record label in England. They're really one of my favorite labels. They have all my favorite pianists on them, and um. Uh, there are going to be a lot of um, Hyperion releases coming up in the coming weeks, in the coming months, let's say. And um, they don't make their music available on uh, streaming services, so you, you can't hear them. You just you can sample them on their website, and we put up the link to the website. But my brother was actually even having trouble um, getting access to the website. You can always come over to Podbean to get that. Or just visit that. You can visit the Hyperion website on your own. It's hyperion.co.uk. Pretty easy to find. But um, that's the reason for that, you know. So we there's really no, nothing we can do about that. You can always come to my house and listen to them uh, <laughs> if you happen to be in the neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, I'm always happy to hear them again and again, so <laughs> no problem. <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah. Now I'm going to get people showing up at night and say, hey, I heard you uh, <laughs> playing music <laughs> Are here. you the Hyperion yeah. guy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway. All right. So anyway, let's get on with this week's classical offerings. Um, the first, um, so I, I, you know, I try to go like a Baroque Renaissance, and this is uh, an early Baroque disc, actually, I would classify it as. Um, this is really mostly, almost all by the composer Heinrich Schütz, and his years are 1585 to 1672. Um, so he was um, pre-Bach. Bach was born in uh, 1685, died 1750. So Schutz was dead by the time Bach was born, which is pretty amazing. Um, and uh, he his music greatly influenced Bach, as did all German composers, and really all composers from the previous hundred years. I think this mm. guy devoured scores like uh, crazy and really became probably the greatest composer the West has ever seen. Um, this album is called uh, David S. Salomon. Uh, Salmi e Canticum Canticorum, and the uh, Psalms and the uh, Song of Songs, um, all biblical texts from the Old Testament. And uh, the um, the ensemble is uh, Le Cri de Paris, and this, uh, they're actually the reason I chose this particular album, because I really liked their, what I hope are their previous two albums. I, haven't, I may have missed one, but um, there was one called uh, Melancholia, and it was a mm -hmm. sort of Renaissance um, choral 
works and it was really unique sound they they took a different approach yeah Mm -hmm. i liked it and then they had one called passione which was kind of more like venetian type Mm -hmm. things well here in heinrich schutz davide salomon we have um schutz took a trip to venice to a study with um uh, giovanni gabrielli who was the um organist at saint mark's in venice at the time and saint mark's is rather a an unusual cathedral spatially. It has all these sort of balconies and little alcoves where singers can actually stand and they would uh, do all these sorts of things with the um, the sound in that um, gigantic uh, cathedral. And mm. uh, they, they get all these really cool effects. And uh, Schutz wanted to um, study that with uh, Gabrielli and also uh, Monteverdi, okay? So these works were all written on this disc in a span of 15 years. Uh, Schutz like Bach, was a Protestant. And uh, this program marks the two two study trips he made to Italy, which is, of course, to this day, Catholic territory. Hmm. Back then, it was the Papal States. I mean, (laughs) or or it was, um, a lot of it was the Papal States, but some of it was run by um, the the Doge in Venice or, you know, whoever kind of was in charge of that territory. And we've got Um, uh, period instruments here too, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we do, in fact. But it's mostly voices that are important but the period instruments the continuo mm. the instruments used in the continuo really are one of the things that make this recording come alive yeah um you know which they were really interesting it sounded great with the uh subwoofer on too <laughs> really the beautiful blend of timbres uh the, okay so the first trip to venice he met uh, giovanni gabrielli and he studied the polychoro choral concertato style of cori spezzati spezzati means um uh, broken or split, so these separate choruses on different sides of the uh, the altar and different sides of the church, and um, Gabrielli would have them, you know, make these effects by you know going back and forth or having one side sing one part of the line, the other side would finish it. It was it was like uh, you know Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon, like in the uh, <laughs> it's four hundred years ago. It was the first surround sound system. It was the first surround sound. It was live. They yeah. did it live. Okay, so uh, yeah, you could you you didn't need uh, headphones and uh, things like that. You just go to church, and you <laughs> gee, right you there. got that experience. Um, you needed to be in Venice to study this technique too, because the style arose because of the peculiar interior of St. Mark's. Mm. Um, on his second trip to Italy, um, Schutz uh, encountered uh, music brimming with affetti or feelings, and the spirit of freedom. Right, Renaissance music wasn't all. It wasn't about feelings. It was about spirituality. It was about holiness, or you know, things like that. And uh, so now we're going for the emotions, which became this big deal, even to this day in Italy. Um, they they just love Italians. Just love schmaltzy emotions. <laughs> the more Passione. pathetic, the better. Passione. <laughs> we're still like that. And the spirit of freedom in music, which is what Baroque music brought. To this day, um, people like to hear Baroque music, and I think that has a lot to do with it. It feels free. It was a very positive time in uh, European history. This was, um, you know, the, the Renaissance was full underway, and the Enlightenment was was coming. And uh, 
with the uh, discoveries of, say, Sir Isaac Newton and Galileo, it really seemed like science was going to now solve all of the world's problems, and people were pretty uh, optimistic about that. And we're still waiting for that to happen. Seems to be but causing a lot more a lot of, these days. But... It caused. It caused. I don't know that it caused more than it solved, but it solved quite a few, hmm. and caused a few others that we probably could do without. Yeah. <laughs> but um, we'll see. The, the scientific project goes on anyway. Um, and he, um, these were um, songs by Giulio Caccini, who I love. I, he, he wrote mostly songs, art songs, and they're so beautiful. Um, one of the most famous ones is Amarilli, who which every um, student of um, song has to learn. Uh, it really exposes the voice. So if you hear a really great singer singing, it's really beautiful. And of course, one of my favorites, Claudio Monteverdi, who pretty much uh, composed the first successful opera by um, kind of arranging so that the words, the accents on the words fell on accents in the music. And that really brought out the emotional content. And uh, opera just took off in Italy in the years afterwards. Um, uh, Le Clit de Paris' uh, director is uh, Geoffrey Jourdain. I hope I didn't actually get a pronunciation for his name. He said that um, the album title, David and Solomon, um, you know, King David and King Solomon from the uh, the Psalms and the, the Old Testament of the Bible. Um, the album evokes change through filiation. So like David and Solomon, you know, David was Solomon's son. And you could think of Schutz as, in a way, being a musical son of Gabrielli and Monteverdi. So that's kind of what they're going for here. Hmm. Um, Schutz is also a link between German and Latin culture. These works on this disc sound very Latin. They sound very Italian, mm. even though he's uh, German. Um, sacred love and its secular corollary is another theme that runs through the album. And this is something I was commenting on a lot in my in the notes I wrote down while I was listening to this. Um, the Song of Songs. Um, the Song of Songs, as we call it in New York. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is... Um, <laughs> It's, it's, it's an erotic poem. Okay, this man and this woman singing, or you know, it's about their love for each other, and Sol. It's attributed to Solomon. Solomon supposedly wrote it, and because it's in the Bible, people think of it as, oh, he's really singing to God as like a, the as a as a kind of like erotic love thing. And uh, I don't, I think that's not true. <laughs> okay, but uh, we have tradition, so you know well, we have to kind of take a... that into account too. A mirror image of the bride of Christ as yeah. to the son, and the same sort of uh, love uh, is expressed in a different way, but through right. the man and wife, right? So. Yeah, a lot of a lot of mystics also kind of talked about like um, the their union with God in a sensual kind of erotic fashion. But you got to remember, um, that King Solomon was around. Uh, Nobody knew who Jesus was yet, <laughs> so he was just probably writing from his experience here, I would guess. It seems that way anyway. I mean, mm. it doesn't, it's kind of a bit of a stretch to think that they're, that he's praising God in these songs. Anyway, we'll get to that when it happens. Anyway, our first track is called Alleluia Lobet den Herren, uh, which is in German, um, praise the Lord, den Herren, okay? And... I put this album on thinking, okay, this will be kind of quiet, but no. No. <laughs> There's a lot going on in this first track. Yeah, not only that, but the very first thing you hear really caught me. It made me sit up in my seat. I was like, whoa, okay. 
This, uh, it really sounded like a Venetian work. I was expecting something a little more uh, quiet and German, but this really sounds like if you've ever heard uh, Monteverdi's um, The Vespers um, for um, The Blessed Virgin. Um, it sounds like the opening work in that with the brass, you know, blaring out. And these these are old brass, too. They're kind of like the, the turkey shoot brass. I really like them, you know. Yeah. And it sounds like something Gabriele Monteverdi might have done. It's upbeat. It's bouncy. There's lots of brass. And uh, this wasn't what I expected from Le Cri de Paris, because I've heard their last two albums. And this really caught me by surprise. Um, the, the last two albums were a little more intimate than this. They were kind of, you know... Here they, this album's into a bit too, but in a different way. Um, here they've got a full dense sound, and it's early Baroque and very Italian. Like the, the early Baroque was Italian; it started there, just like the the Renaissance did. The work progresses in voice combination sections. Uh, one section will end, or at the end of one line will end, and the vocal combinations change, and that's pretty compelling. I have to say, when when you hear that, it's like this all this little. It's like, it's like having these different flavors of candy you know, each, with each change, you know, it's sort of except that it's for your ear instead of your mouth. Um, they change more rapidly toward the end to build momentum. It's really fun. I really enjoyed yeah. listening to this. And I was just struck by, because I know a little bit about the history, like I try to put my head back in that time. And um, I, I got like sort of a sense of how exciting this music must have been to the people who first heard it because um well music was pretty much like uh when you went to church you would hear like um polyphony you'd hear a, cho a choir singing these gorgeous you know polyphonic things but this is actually pretty exciting music uh for a church mm. <laughs> it was pretty uh and it, it was also inventive and new and really compelling really interesting i mean our ears as i've mentioned many times on this podcast are a bit more um jaded after hearing the sounds of the modern world and um you know recorded sound and elect amplified music and stuff like that so we don't really hear the same way they did but this must have been really startling if you could imagine yourself erasing all that experience from your memory anyway onwards second track d mit training sein i guess I don't know how to say that A with the umlaut. It starts this starts with an intimate and pretty gorgeous organ sound. I love these old organs. Uh they they're not as full sounding as the uh the modern um ones that also double as a um uh you know as dynamite for building destruction <laughs> because they're so powerful. Um so these are a little more subtle and they they all have their own unique sound sort of like the violins of the time, you know, they kind of um you you know this is the one in the church in this place or things mm -hmm. like that. Um, strings come in, vocals sing the text. Vocally, this is more what I'm used to from uh, Le Cri de Paris. Um, I like the arrangement of the brass and strings melding into the same tones in the accompaniment. Had to listen really closely to pull out how that sound was being achieved. It's a it's a combination of instruments. Uh, the way the vocal lines are passed back and forth, as well as the presence of the brass. Uh, still recalls that Venetian period. Third track, Ich beschwere euch. I can't do this tonight. Ihr Töchter zu Jerusalem. It's still in the Venetian setting, but we're in a very intimate setting here. The text is the Song of Songs from uh, the Bible. 
from the Old Testament, which is pretty erotic, and it's sensually sung here by two female vocalists. And I was kind of happy that in this case they were female vocalists because I got that sensuality, being being a male type myself. Uh, they had longing in their voices and very sensual for that period. Um, these people, you know. Um, it's not, it's not like R and B sensual, <laughs> sensual for its time, you know, Is that you gotta your, make that allowance. Uh, what? Gender identification on male type. Male type. That's me. A male type. Yeah. Is that my new, maybe we should do that instead of saying a male, male type. I don't know. <laughs> I'm thinking of myself as male. Okay. Two male voices come in for the next two lines. And I like the winding lines sung in harmony by first the women, then the men in the next verses. And they kind of trade off verses, the uh, men's and the women's. It recalls voices. It recalls Monteverdi. I got a sense of the excitement Italian music caused at the beginning of the 17th century. There's a real frisson in this performance. Uh, frisson is rather a convenient French word. It means like a shiver, sort of like a, ooh, you know, that, that, you know when you get a little ex- slightly excited and you kind of get that mm. sort of electricity running over your skin. That's a frisson in music anyway. I, I enjoyed this. Okay, I'm enjoying my. I'm enjoying this too much now. I think I have to calm down. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> track four, Anima Mea Liquefacta Est. I love the title of this. This is this is also a uh, uh, from a psalm, but uh, my my soul is liquefied. I can't is what it means. It's translated in the booklet as melting. Okay, but liquefacta is pretty directly translated as liquefied. Mm. You could do that too. I like that image better, I think. Here, some wind instruments are featured in the opening, and it's something like cornets. Yeah. Um, and this brass. Did you get that? Yeah, I got this great interplay between the male voices and the cornet. Uh, yeah. It's uh, really a good technique there. Yeah. Uh, the, the text is, my soul is, I changed it to liquefied. It says, my soul melts. All right? My soul is liquefied when my beloved spoke. Yeah. Okay, uh-huh. I've I've heard that I've had that feeling before. We're still not that far away from the past, are we? Thankfully, um, it's odd to have two low male voices singing this text um, about a man. <laughs> Perhaps the beloved is God. I get the impression that when Solomon, well, well, you know, wrote this text, he was kind of writing a dialogue between a man and a woman. Okay, like a love sort of a duet, sort of. Mm-hmm. Okay, but here the men are singing this, um, and I think. That um, the musicians of the time, this is like the, this, you know, we're talking about BC for the writing of these texts, but um, the the Christians really wanted to make this uh, sort of like a, like a, a prayer, a prayer to God or some sort of like, something like that. So they would just kind of mix the voices, I guess. I don't know. Um, the imagery is erotic. Um, his lips are as lilies dropping choice. Myrrh. I like that. Choice myrrh. The the, the Latin is mirum primum, so uh-huh. the good primum stuff. first or the highest level, yeah. The good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> dropping dropping you know, what's top drawer myrrh. How's <laughs> that for a translation? Okay, one does wonder if the Latin translators from Hebrew change the pronouns. Um I don't think so actually. I think um because I think uh Solomon's writing in both voices. Hmm. Track five I'm not a scholar on this. I really should talk to someone about it or read a book about it or something. Uh, Ajuro vos filiae 
Ajudo vos filiae Jerusalem. This is in uh, Latin. Uh, this is the Song of Songs still. Men's voices. This time they're in the tenor range. Singing about a man and longing as they do so. There's a lot of longing in this. I think um, eroticism is put across as longing in the uh, Baroque era. The Italians are really into yeah. longing in this era. They kind of talk about their, you know. How they, anyway. <laughs> Next Track six, we get to the, I guess, near the midpoint of the uh, recording, and uh, we get a new composer here, Samuel Scheidt. It's a, um, uh, it's not Scheidt, like, <laughs> it's with a DT at the yeah. end. I, I probably didn't say that as well as I could have. Um, anyway, his, um, it's an instrumental work, Paduana Dolorosa. I really like um, this one. Yeah, it was pretty. Um, instrumental interlude by a different component, well, Samuel Scheidt. Uh, rather melancholy, it features winds and mm -hmm. strings accompanying in long vibratoless tones. It is um, very, um, you know, touching. I guess it's slow. It's a little. It's it's sad, and beautiful orchestration. Now, mm -hmm. the orchestration isn't necessarily his. I'm not really. You know, the, right. the ensemble decides what the um, continuo instruments are going to be, uh, and the strings just play the melodies that Scheidt wrote down. But, I'm um, trying to say yeah. his name without making it sound like shit. <laughs> <laughs> the English yeah, it, word. The timbres <laughs> of the instruments uh, come mm. through really wonderfully. And what I like about uh, this kind of early Baroque pieces, uh, yeah. the surprising shifts from uh, minor to major. Yeah. You know, it sort of goes back and forth a lot um, in this era. And that happens in this piece a lot. So the mood yeah. just flips and uh, keeps you on your toes uh, all the yeah, while. This just sounds really beautiful. And you want to keep in mind that the people of the era really would have felt that change, like uh, the, uh, the the change from minor to major. It's 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 a complete mood change, and it would probably mm -hmm. just lift these people right out of themselves. Okay, um, we don't really hear them the same way anymore. Although sometimes you get it in pop music, there'll be a sudden change to major, and you just suddenly feel this brightness mm -hmm. in the music. Okay, back to vocals on track seven, An den Wassern zu Babel. This is um, German text. It's a psalm, and it's a lament for Zion. Uh, this one, this one's been set quite a few times, actually, and this one is for mixed choir. It's bright sounding, a little lighter. It's more in the Schutz style that I'm familiar with from uh, older recordings, uh, though it has an Italian brightness to it. Um, the organ accompanies in this, and they're razor-sharp, clear harmonies. I should mention at this point, this is a really beautiful recording, very clear. Um, there's a lot of... Um, uh, it's easy for the ear to separate the instruments. I mean, they blend together beautifully, but you can kind of... They're, they're clear enough that you can get in there and hear which instruments are playing. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty uh, remarkable. Um, this, the sound is beautifully record, caught by the engineer. Uh, each line features... A change in the rhythm or harmonic profile, also keeping uh, interest up. Track eight, Warum Tauben die Heiden? This is um, a German text again of Psalm 2. Uh, this one is familiar from Handel's Messiah, um, in English, of course, in that case. Um, here it's set with full chorus and brass, alla Gabriele and Monteverdi, again, with the vocal combinations changing with each verse 
Again, very appealing. Uh, this must have been thrilling to hear in St. Mark's, where the singers can be placed all over the church. This particular track does well to suggest the space between vocal groups changing in the two channels. You can hear them going back and forth, and then some of the voices are a little more recessed, indicating that they're kind of further back in the church. It's well done. I liked this. Mm. Uh, track 9, Ego Dormio et Cor Meum Vigilat, Latin text from the Song of Songs. Um, this has an interesting subdued opening with two men singing the first line, Ego Dormio, I Sleep. Uh, it sounds like a four-part group with three men's voices and a woman's voice on top. She comes in a little later. Uh, the constantly changing texture of the harmonic arrangement, um, now together, now scattered, now one leading and the other following, uh, suggests a kind of tossing between the sheets, given the test text. That's what I thought. Uh -huh. I don't know. I have to listen to it again. <laughs> you really had to. <laughs> you really had to work for that to, to hear it that way. But uh, I'm always, you know, well, I'm lonely, so I think about these things all the time. <laughs> anyway, track ten, ladies, write a nice <laughs> message to Adult Music Podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah, Gmail. like there are ladies listening to us, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> listening to us nerds talk about music. Anyway, here we go. No, track 10, Volnerasti Cormeum Filia Carissima. Okay. Latin. Song of Songs again. So we're going back and forth. Well, the, the Song of Songs seems to be, all be in Latin here. Um, you have wounded my heart with one of your eyes, is the way the text goes. And mm. it sounds more like a typical Baroque Italian song than a biblical text, yet there it is. Um, this is gently set, and when the eye is mentioned... Um, there's an appealing tenderness in the men's voices, singing in harmony. Um, listen for it. The line in Latin is in uno oculorum tuorum, and the oculorum would mean I. Uh, so when you hear that ocular. word, it's going to really uh, kind of pull you in. It's really mm. a really nice setting. Track 11. O quam tu pulcra es amica mea. Uh, pulcra is a nice word in Latin. It means beautiful. Um, this is from the Song of Songs. Um, I like this setting for two male voices, one tailing the other, and sweet string accompaniment with um, organ continuo. Schutz um, really seems to have something for the eyes. Whenever they're mentioned, his music pulls back in enthrallment. You know, like he's just seen this image of such incredible beauty that he's a mm. hush falls over him. Um, I enjoyed the emotion, or maybe that's just the choir interpreting it like that i don't think there's there are many um in scores in this era there weren't many um dynamic markings i enjoyed the emotion in the vocal lines here at once enthralled and still then excited and active when the two vocalists sing about their their lover's breasts which is kind of at uh, the three minute mark <laughs> which are described as two young twin rows a row, which is, you know, duo hinuli caprie gemelli. Okay. <laughs> There's a harpsichord, a new sound. Okay, so you can't miss it. There you go. You'll hear the harpsichord come in for that. Hmm. Veni delibano, veni amica mea, seconda parte. Okay. Song of songs. Gentle pizzicato bass. This is this is pretty. I liked the uh, pizzicato bass. It's a real change of texture on this album. Uh, provides the continuo as wind instruments play polyphonic melodies. Um, two female vocalists feature in this one. Uh, 
the line, O quam tu pulcra es, how beautiful you are, is made to stand out, uh, repeated as it is. At about uh, 2 minutes and 45 seconds into this track, track 12, there's a slowing of the rhythm as the lines, O quam tu pulcra es, is stretched out into a more definitive statement. I always like it when ladies sing that to me, you know. Yeah, I know. Hmm. Say, say that to your girlfriend tonight. Just go up to her and say, O quam tu pulcra es. See how she responds. Yeah, let us know. <laughs> She'll say, oh, you speak French. <laughs> that's, a, that's a line in the Thomas Dolby song, Airhead, from my college days. Thomas I still Dolby, crack up well. about that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, track 13, Hair, Unser Herrscher. Now, um, Easter has just passed, and uh, these German words... Um, would be familiar to any big classical fan because it, this text is used as the opening of Bach's St. John Passion, which I heard four times uh, in the last wow. two months. I was, yeah, I was really into it this year. I really wanted to hear it. I heard, I went back into my collection and heard some older recordings, and I heard the new um, Gardner one, which comes with a uh, Blu-ray and surround sound. It was really nice. Um, these famous words from Psalm 8 begin Bach's St. John Passion. And I was really curious to see what Schutz would do with them. It's a pretty straightforward and rather lightly harmonized setting. Uh, Le Cris de Paris do a lot to make the textures transparent, lightening their tones and using a light organ sound in its mid-range and high end. And a plucked uh, theorbo, I'm guessing it's a theorbo. It's, they have a theorbo and a guitar on the recording, and I'm guessing mm. this is a theorbo. could be the guitar. I can't really tell which. Um, with strings to underline key parts of the text. The harmonic texture thickens as the climaxes approach. Um, at three minutes, we reach one. Then the voices pull back, and we hear sopranos and altos sing a light harmony. I like the sudden racing through syllables after long-held vowels effect that's often used in this section. Monteverdi used to do this kind of thing, too. You'd hear these long vowels, and then they'd be just racing through two lines of text with all these like syllables just going off like fireworks. It's kind of nice. There's some and then big the, uh, brass fanfares in this one, too. There are, yes. Yeah. Brass fanfares. And they're Monteverdi brass fanfares, that type of you know, mm -hmm. one. And the last track, Danket dem Herren, den, den ihr ist freundlich. Um, this is German, Psalm 136. So it looks like all the psalms are um, in German and the uh, Song of Songs is in Latin on this album. Using Latin translate, the Latin translation. A Venetian approach, uh, starting with the tenor, accompanied by organ and brass, with the full chorus responding. The approach culminates in percussion and brass accompanying the choir after the harmonizing soloists sing their lines, very Monteverdian. Okay, and that's the end of the album. And I have to say, um, I was really surprised. I thought it was a surprising and appealing album, and especially for those who like Gabrielli and Monteverdi. I didn't expect to hear these kind of sounds on this album. Um, their influence on Schutz's music here is undeniable, and the album is beautifully recorded, as I said, and the arrangements of the continuo and vocal placement is transparent throughout and often very creative. Um, the harmonies are clearly audible. Individual voices can be picked out from the texture. Uh, it's a com There's a complement to the types of voices used as well as to the placement of the singers and the recording. It's a really beautiful and kind of like 
I hate using words like thrilling for classical music. I mean, if you're a total nerd like myself, you'll think it's thrilling. But a very enjoyable recording. Uh, Le Clique de Paris continues to fascinate. And I, yeah, I was uh, delightfully surprised by this record. I was expecting something totally different, and I got something better. And I love when that happens, don't you? Yeah, it's always nice to yeah. be uh, pleasantly surprised. Uh, I like this one a lot, too, mostly for the overall uplifting nature of it. Uh, the spirited mm-hmm. instrumental parts. Yeah, something parts. else I didn't expect, by the way. Uh, I like the balance of the uh, instrumental and uh, choral parts working together. I liked the uh, instrumental interlude a lot. And uh, the period instruments, clear recording, and the interesting use of the uh, locations of the voices that you could yeah. sense even in stereo uh, hinted at you know bigger ideas of that were happening at the time using space. So, uh, yeah, it puts you in a good mood. It's interesting music. And uh, you know, if you look at the lyrics and the uh, biblical references of, for the stories, it makes it uh, even more intriguing. So definitely a good one to check out. Yeah, and it's erotic, <laughs> like yeah. our logo. Yes. It suits our podcast well, I think. I think this is what we're going for. That's right. right. Song of Songs. Song of Songs. Okay. And we are, of course, the podcast of podcasts. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I like to think so anyway. All right. Second, um, what what would I call it? It's an album tonight. A a composer. Now, this is Ennio Morricone, uh, Cinema Suites for Violin and Orchestra. Um, This is performed by Marco Serino on violin, Orchestra Haydn di Bolzano at Trento, and Andrea Morricone conducting, and this is on the Arcana label. I should mention that uh, the previous album was on Harmonia Mundi. I don't think I mm. mentioned that. Anyway, the Morricone album I'm going to talk about now is on the Italian Arcana label. And uh, what this is, is um, toward the end of the 1980s, uh, Morricone began reworking some of the famous scores originally composed for film and television. We all know these very familiar themes from those, uh, especially the Sergio Leone movies, but he also did themes for um, Giuseppe Tornatore. It's people who saw Cinema Paradiso will remember some of those and a few others. Um, so um, he produced a number of suites that he envisaged for uh, concert performance, and he emphasizes connections and relations. This I can vouch for having heard the recording similarities and or contrast between compositions from different periods in his career Hmm. in the early 2000s the concerto suites were further developed and transformed into versions for solo instrument and orchestra and with the soloist recorded here marco serino morricone completed his revision of all the versions of the suites for the version heard here for violin and orchestra he completed this in 2020 the year he died Hmm. Okay. So I was kind of uh, interested to hear this because last year we heard a uh, jazz recording that uh, right, yeah. picked up some uh, Morricone themes. Yeah, that was pretty okay. exciting. That was an exciting recording. Yeah. And uh, this one, um, well, <laughs> it wasn't exciting. Let's just put it that way. No, it's pretty. Um, let, but, um, it's pretty. It stays pretty subdued for the most of the program. Well, that was my whole issue with it. It doesn't change much, and mm-hmm. the um, orchestration doesn't really change much either. There are subtle differences from piece to piece, but um, anyway, let's let's talk about this. Um, f- the first suite is the Sergio Leone suite, and th- these would be, to listeners, the most popular themes that mm-hmm. um, uh, Morricone wrote. I mean, they're, they're almost like 
cultural artifacts now. It starts with um, uh, Deborah's theme from Once Upon a Time in America, a movie I still haven't seen, by the way. Oh, I really? Guess I, oh, no, wow. I have not seen this one. Good to see that. Uh, yeah, definitely. I know, right? I remember when it came out, too, in the 80s, and I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't go. I, used to, I saw every movie that came out then, and not, not this one somehow. I don't know. Maybe I did see it. I just don't remember. That can't be. Anyway, this is this has a uh, the thing I'm struck with is the romantic sound of this, and that's really going to be true of every work on this album. The violin is very lush and plays the familiar melody clearly and with affection for it. Uh, there's a piano accompanying, backed by strings. Uh, the strings eventually take over. Uh, the piece does sound very atmospheric and filmic, like the scores from films from a bygone day. So I kind of think of these big Hollywood type productions. Uh, this just sort of does a natural fade and goes into the next section, which is Cockeye's song from Once Upon a Time in America. Uh, nice transition. This has rougher material for the violin. Um, and the the impression of Cockeye's character is really well you know, put mm-hmm. across, I think, by this theme. Third, um, the main theme from Once Upon a Time in America. And I think what makes this stand out from the actual film scores are the gorgeous and often clever transitions uh, into the different themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, one can easily hear the relationships in this context. And this particular section is very brief at 1 minute and 39 seconds. Next comes the main theme from Once Upon a Time in the West, a different movie. Uh, there's a pause before this starts, but the strings come in on the same chord, just with a slightly altered melodic figure. There's a celesta in this section, which the violin responds to, very warm strings toward the end, and there's a harp arpeggio accompanying. This is almost Brucknerian. And uh, the fifth track this is the last of the Sergio Leone suite, The Ecstasy of Gold from the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And we get close to the famous do 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 close from that movie without hearing it. This may be it. the dynamic peak of the album here uh, as far as volume goes. Yeah, seamless transition to this very slow theme, about one minute in. Uh, the very familiar horse riding rhythm and theme from the movie come in. Uh, very Western sounding, prototypical in fact. It's pretty mm-hmm. rousing. I'm sure it raised smiles in the concert hall. You do, you do hear the um, that wah wah famous theme yeah. in the second minute. <laughs> he kind of throws that in there. I think I have okay. the um, uh, who who recorded these as uh, kind of pop hits. Oh, Hugo Montenegro. Uh, uh, I have I that recorded. I know that album. The 1968 or something. He did the, yeah. the all the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, there was Music, a 1990s so. recording of these themes too by like a small ensemble mm. too that I think I actually I don't think I have it anymore. Mm. Oh well, I didn't see it in there in the collection there. Okay, next comes a work called Canone Inverso. Um, uh, Canone, Canone Inverso one and two. The violin starts and the piano comes back in to start the theme. This is still in the romantic vein, but it's a more subtle theme with counterpoint between the violin and orchestra. Um, incidentally, by this point, I'm thinking none of this sounds uh, terribly challenging for the violinist. He's he's really tasked with producing this really sweet melodic sound, yeah, and sweet. that's about it. Actually, you're not going to get any violin uh, fireworks on this album, which is really a shame. I mean, they they should have you know given the violinist something to do. I mean, he is the solo instrument. You know, he he could stand to show some technique. Um, the Canoni Inverso um, March. Leandro Piccioni on the piano on this, and it is a march. The violin scurries from register to register as the orchestra marches on. Um, there are war- there's a warm kind of like brushed string ending, f- 
familiar from music like uh, Debussy or the early 20th century big orchestras. And the uh, last part is uh, Finale Interrotto. This is a seamless transition to this section with the thematic material being heavily stated in the orchestra with the violin sometimes taking it, sometimes accompanying. Uh, this is kind of syrupy in the orchestration mm -hmm. at the end. <laughs> it's got a big dramatic finish. So all the things I've said, the big violins, this, the mass strings, the harp, it's, it's all just all these kind of romantic kind of cliches. So even though these themes are really very famous they're kind of being put into something very uh, predictable here and it just kind of after a while it kind of wore on me there's not a lot of variety on this record okay we get to the Giuseppe Tornatore suite um, the first is uh, the theme playing love from the movie The Legend of 1900 uh, solo violin with piano accompaniment starts to spare and pretty theme and then um Nostalgia from Cinema Paradiso. This is Giuseppe Tornatore again. This is piano and violin. Uh, pretty again, and really similar to The Legend of 1900. Mm -hmm. uh, the piano basically accompanies. Uh, strings come in to give things a romantic glow, and they remain sweet and in the background. There's a lot of Giuseppe Tornatore on this. Uh, next one comes Looking for You, the love theme from Cinema Paradiso. Smooth transition by the strings. Piano and violin play the melody. Violin is in its high register. Next comes a Giuseppe Tornatore movie I haven't seen or even heard of. Um, the main theme from Malena. Uh, this is a solo violin, pointedly plays the opening, and then a pedal bass comes in, then warm strings. Uh, warmth is a good word to describe the themes in orchestration as well. And the last in the Giuseppe Tornatore suite, uh, the main theme from A Pure Formality. Uh, the violin starts this solo. Uh, this part shimmers a bit in the orchestra with its gently pulsing figures like rippling water in a lake. It gets kind of like a uh, lounge suity in the middle. I kind of picture this guy <laughs> in a lounge suit on a sofa being served drinks <laughs> in a club on a velour couch. <laughs> you know, It just sounds 1970s mm. to me somehow. But it clears up and reintroduces the theme. The strings do a natural fade at the end. Um, next comes um, a very brief um, sweet from the mission his film the mission uh first that gabriel's one, yeah. yeah gabriel's oboe here the theme is played by the violin that's <laughs> called gabriel's <laughs> oboe it's a warmth it's warm and romantic and memorable too this is a nice theme and the falls comes next uh this features downward arpeggiated figure in the strings slow and spacious and these two i liked actually mm -hmm. they're a little different than the rest after this the brian de palma suite Hey. Um, main theme from Casualties of War. And I haven't seen this movie. Uh, the predictable, pretty melody in the violin, very sweet with quiet string accompaniment. Lots of space in this, and there's a melting melody and accompaniment. Next comes the death theme from The Untouchables, which we all remember from the 80s, Kevin Costner, Robert De Niro. You want to get Capone? I'll tell you how to get Capone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Violin and who else? Andy Garcia was in this too. Andy Garcia, okay. yeah. Sean Connery. Sean well, Connery. Good, good, good people in there. Yeah. yeah. The now deceased Sean Connery, sadly. That's right. Yeah. Violin plays arpeggiated figures from its bottom end. The music still manages to be melodic and appealing despite its theme. Um, but it's of more course poignant. it is. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's more poignant. <laughs> it's more poignant than dark. This uh, particular theme, even though it's a death theme, uh, not much tension in any of this music. It really does sound like film music, and it sounds atmospheric, really. Mm. Okay, we're getting towards the end. Uh, Moses and Marco Polo Suite, uh, Journey from Moses. Um, this starts with uh, these are two from two films, Moses, and then the other film is Marco Polo that he um, wrote that um, Morricone wrote the. Um, yeah, it wasn't for. like a time travel epic where. Yeah. Moses, no, never mind. Kinda, except that. <laughs> yeah, it's got a really weird. The Marco Polo part really gets kind of. Mm. Chinese sounding, yeah, it does. exotic it sounding. Does. Yeah. Okay, this starts with a harp playing a slow, deliberate melody, and the violin comes in and plays the theme over this. Um, then we get to the theme from the theme, the main theme from Moses, goes directly into this seamlessly. The tempo and orchestral texture hasn't changed, but the theme is different. It sort of sounds like an answer to the previous movement's call. And then track twenty is the uh, main theme from Marco Polo. So we're in a different movie now. And this is a seamless transition, only this time we hear some exotic sounds for this context. Um, they're not exotic, you know, for every from our everyday perspective. Mm. There's a wind instrument and then some gentle harp flourishes to evoke the Far East. Uh, the violin plays a light but still sweet theme. And we get the atmospheric harp accompanied by string harmonics at the end. I love string harmonics. That was nice. Mm. As the violin plays the theme one last time. The very last track is called Per le Antiche Scale from uh, the Bolognini movie by the same name, I guess. This has a gentle piano beginning and the violin comes in and plays its poignant melody, ends with a sense of yearning, and we're left with that. Okay, so this is an enjoyable album. It's very easy on the ear. Um, I was expecting something a lot more fun, though, I guess because of the jazz album we heard last year and just other kind of approaches to Morricone's music. Uh, this is really not an album for the adventurous. It's a bit syrupy. And I, you know, I think listening to this gave me diabetes. I was, <laughs> I had uh, low blood sugar before it started and then high blood sugar by the end. <laughs> Just, it went in through my ears. <laughs> it's a very sweet sounding violin. And, and it's the, the same it, throughout the album. Yeah, That's a, it, there wasn't much variety of tone. It never rises... Um, yeah. Above a, a sort of uh, certain dynamic. Um, and yeah, it's a little bit too bad. I mean, in one way, I understand the presentation. You know, Morricone was a, one of the most prolific composers. He just right. churned out so much material. And the thing is, it's all beautiful, great melodies that are memorable. Yeah, great melodies, that was his gift. Yeah. Um, but as far as uh, an exciting presentation, um, it's rather static and, um, yeah. you know, not uh, terribly involving. Uh, if you do want to check out uh, the one we we're referring to, you got to go all the way back to episode nine, appropriately titled A Fistful of Music. And, uh, the, <laughs> it was a good episode yeah, title. <laughs> it was. Um, <clears throat> the uh, Morricone uh, album we we're referring to is on Warner Classics. It was Morricone Stories by Stefano Di Battista. Uh, yeah. who does jazz versions of uh, a lot of his movie themes. Uh, yeah, they work really well. Yeah, on uh, Soprano Sax. Uh, it's a pretty uh, exciting album. Uh, yeah. So you can hear Gabriel's oboe uh, on that, on Soprano Sax instead of violin. Yeah. Um, right. But check it out. I should mention um, this album. We should mention, yeah, he's, he writes such memorable tunes. Uh, the themes are appealing. They're all kind of samey, but the tunes are so appealing that you kind of can let them go. Uh, beautifully recorded and full sound. The strings just kind of 
you know, just envelop mm. you in your room like a, you know, a nice warm bath. <laughs> mm. uh, there's not enough variety of timbre to keep the ear interested throughout on this album. Uh, a little more variety would have been welcome. It's easy listening classical, really. So if you're just kind of wading into classical music, this would be this would be a good place to start, I guess. It's, mm. But it's the kind of thing, though, where when people say, you know, oh, classical music is boring. I mean, if you play this, they'll kind of think you're one of these old people <laughs> that <laughs> likes boring music. I hate to say that about Morricone, but because yeah, I do like his music a lot, his themes. Yeah. Um, incidentally, there's a kind of saming. I, I got the impression, though, like he's trying to show the relationship between the themes in his movies. But I got the impression that they all are kind of related. I think it reminded me of that whole John Williams um, thing, one of the most all famous right. film composers of the 20th and now right. 21st century. Um, he um, orchestrated a movie called uh, Born Free uh, about lions, and it had a theme song that he wrote, and it went, uh, Born free, free as the wind blows, if anybody remembers that. And if you think that only uh, 20 years later he uh, did the main theme to Star Wars, it's the Born Free theme upside down. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Born free, free as the wind blows. It's the same rhythm. Right. Except that it's upside down. Hmm. I don't know. He's, uh, hey, Vivaldi did it, so. Yeah, why not? We can't really complain. A little recycling. A little recycling. Bach did it, too. All right. Our last classical offering for tonight is uh, actually a pretty interesting um, piece uh, by the c- conductor and composer, Esapeka Salonen, Finnish uh, composer and conductor, his cello concerto. And this uh, album is coupled uh, with Ravel's Sonata for Violin and Cello, a work I really love. So I really wanted to hear this because I, I will jump at any opportunity to hear Ravel's Sonata for Violin and Cello. Um, this particular one is played by Nicholas Altstedt, a, a cellist that I really happen to like. Um, the Sonata for Violin and Cello also features Pekka Cusisto on the violin. And uh, the cello concerto has the Rotterdam Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Dima Slobodeniuk, the conductor. Uh, This is on the Alpha label, the French label Alpha. Um, We, I got interested in this. It was the cello concerto was written for Yo-Yo Ma, and we heard the recording. Mm. It's a thirty-minute piece, and um, the Yo-Yo Ma performance came out basically when the. Concerto was premiered. It was on Sony, I think, and um, it was it was a thirty minute CD, but it was a new piece, and it had made a bit of a splash, which is really unusual for a conductor. Usually, there uh, you know Mahler was a great composer, but there are a lot of conductors who write a lot of music that really isn't very good. This one turned out to uh, actually capture people, and the most important thing about a concerto is do soloists want to play it? That's really what makes. Um, mm-hmm makes these pieces succeed. And so far, we now have two performances of this, the Yo-Yo Ma one, and now this Nicolet Alstate one. Now, Alstate gave the Finnish premiere with Salonen conducting. Uh, Yo-Yo Ma gave the world premiere, I mm. think, wherever that was. And this one is um, by the in Rotterdam, okay? All right, now this is um, a three-movement uh, concerto. It's pretty complicated. And this is live, too. And it's live. Yeah, yeah it's we live, get applause yeah. at the end. Which, which was surprising because yeah. I didn't hear any uh, any idiot coughing no, in the middle, no. as, and as has been known to happen. It's outstanding uh, recording quality, too. 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, by the way, in in my novel, Extreme Music, which I would be appreciative if all of you would buy and read, because <laughs> I need the money to ke- to keep my CD collection growing. Anyway, um, this some it's one of the things I just hate so much about hearing live classical music is these old people who just cough in the middle of a movement and they always cough at the well they probably cough at the loud sections too but you just don't hear them but they're always in that soft section when you're really being drawn in mm. and uh, some idiot coughs and uh, in the novel um, Extreme Music um, the composer Alberto Narcisi like somebody coughs during one of his work and he stops conducting turns around to the audience and he's he calls them out what idiot coughed I'm still waiting for that to happen in real life <laughs> I really want that I really want that experience anyway I of course have never coughed during a concert I've done other things though <laughs> Anyway, first movement. Now, all these movements are unnamed. They're just one, two, and three. It's a three-movement work. Hmm. Salonen thinks of the first movement as stylized chaos. And right away, that should tell you whether you want to hear this piece or not. (laughs) If this sounds like something that will appeal to you, uh, go for it. Um, A simple thought emerges out of a complex landscape, like consciousness developing from clouds of dust. Or maybe the universe um, (laughs) developing Hmm. from the Big Bang or something like that. Uh, it's kind of like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony opening, the same sort of idea. It doesn't sound like that, but you know, it starts with this kind of like undefined. It's a big sound. soup of orchestral sound. Yeah. That's what yeah, I call it. A at soup the of sound. Yeah. yeah, but the cello changes that. It does. That that's the uh, consciousness developing from the clouds of dust. Um, Salonen uses the metaphor of a comet for the concerto in this work. I think the cello in this work, the trajectory of a moving object in space being followed and emulated by other lines, which I guess would be the orchestra. Um, These sections are almost like a canon, but not quite. Okay, this is a 13-minute movement. It's pretty chaotic at the beginning with lots of interesting timbres and rhythms peeking out of the texture. This is a nice recording that way. They made made it appealing to the ear. Um, There's an insistent string theme that gets sequenced uh, sequencing is like what happens in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. You're like da 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 da, and then you hear it like a sequence lower. Da 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 da. You just take that whole theme and move it down or up, and that's sequencing. So it's a repeated theme in a different register uh, or a different scale or whatever. Uh, there's a crescendo at a minute and forty-five seconds. We finally hear the solo cello at around two minutes, so it gets a it gets a nice introduction. Uh, starting with the string figure and playing lyrically from there. Lyrically is always uh, good news in music. It means like you're, you can kind of warm to it. Altstadt is a charismatic soloist with a beautiful tone. There's something magnetic about the cello's tone in all this orchestration. He really stands out. And I think that's really necessary. The, uh, the cellist has to have a bit of charisma. Um, Yo-Yo Ma certainly does too. So these are really two good cellists to be playing this piece. Yeah, he does the... A- a nice balance of when it, when a cello comes in, that melody kind of arrests you coming out of that soup of orchestra, yeah. and your first impression will be the real gorgeous, rich tone that he gets on the legato sections. But mm. as it progresses, uh, it becomes rather aggressive, and his tone changes completely to get yeah. this real aggressive bite that cuts right through the orchestra. So I was impressed. You know that he can 
get whatever effect he needs to express that uh, emotion that's called for uh, at the time. Right, and that, that he's willing movement. to do that too. Yeah. Oh, he, he wasn't one of these guys that's like, oh, I can't hear my beautiful tone. You know, he was mm. not worried about that, which is nice. Um, let me see. We can hear imitations of the cello's melodic material in the orchestra if we listen closely. It's not very upfront, but it is there. Uh, there's some pretty and very sensitive orchestration after around the 4 minute and 30 second mark, uh, sounding a bit to me like rain in deep space, if you can imagine such a thing, <laughs> as as seen through the Hubble telescope. Wow. <laughs> you know, there's a kind of coldness to it. <laughs> I don't know. I was trying to get an image. I don't know. Mm. As the cello melody continues, um, more imitation. I did get a sense of like deep space from this. It really does sound mm-hmm. otherworldly, this... Um, this um, this piece. Um, there are more imitations from the orchestra, usually by individual instruments that don't stand out from the rest much. And I got the sensation of little strands of space material picking up on the cello's please, P-L-E-A-S. <laughs> the canonic material spoken of occurs in the seventh minute in the orchestra. This was in the notes I mentioned uh, earlier. Some more spaciness in the orchestra, and then the cello line speeds up after 10 minutes and grows more emphatic. Uh, the material slows as it reaches the end. The cello dips down into its lower register, and the orchestral material quietly shimmers. Really intriguing mo- movement. I thought this was pretty creative writing from uh, Salonen. I was impressed by that. Mm-hmm. As is the rest of the piece, really. Second movement, uh, Salonen. The composer says this movement starts with a wedge-formed cloud, and there's like a um. He he kind of uh, makes a picture of it in the booklet note. It's uh, the greater than sign that you learned in math class. So in other words, there's this wide kind of range in the orchestra, and it kind of narrows down into like a funnel-like, uh, you know, hmm. you know, wedge wedge space, and then it ends the opposite way with the. Uh, with the kind of like the orchestral material going through this being in the wedge and then just opening out into its whole range. That's how he described it in the booklet note. Um, Slow, this is him still talking. Slow cello arches are looped to create harmony from single lines. And the middle section is a playful duet between the solo cello and the alto flute. Okay, so you have this big uh, forte opening. It's very loud. Um, Long held chord in the strings. As the other orchestral sections insert contrasting material, it quietens at 1 minute and 15 seconds, so that's where the wedge occurs. 1 minute and 15 seconds, see if you can hear it all just kind of kind of narrow down. Then the cello enters at around a minute and 20 seconds at the bottom of its range, which is a great range. I love the bottom range of every instrument. I don't know what it is with me. Uh, it plays an upward figure, ends it, and then there's complete silence. Very surprising. Um, he resumes this upward figure in a higher range, and we can hear the low strings start quietly rumbling in support. There are some harmonics in the cello at 3 minutes and 20 seconds onward, a sound I really love. So 3 minutes 20 seconds, listen for that. It continues, and the fluttering figures come in from the orchestra, mostly in individual wind instruments. Fragmentary harmonics are breathed from the cello after 4 minutes and 30 seconds, after which he plays a wild arpeggiated figure that a flute flutters over. This would be the middle section of the movement that Salonen mentions in his notes. So that's at about uh, after 4 minutes and 30 seconds. There are some pretty original swooping sounds, I think, from the cello 
after mm. the seven minute mark. I think that's the cello doing that. Yeah, to me, I said so they sound like bird cries. Yeah. I was wondering if they were electronically manipulated. I don't think so, though. No. I think it's an acoustic sound. Mm. But just from the sound that came out of the speakers, I couldn't really tell. Um, the low strings echo what the cello was playing, and at 7 minutes and 52 seconds, the cloud wedge opens up again, and the music gets louder and more chaotic. Um, the third movement just starts with no pause. So once that chaotic stuff happens, bang, the third movement just is launched into it starts with a slow, brooding cello solo under the residue of the second wedge cloud. Uh, this is Salonen's words again. He, I, I mentioned all this because you really need a guide to know what's going on. Now, you can enjoy this without knowing it, but um, it's helpful to have an image, I think. Uh, he says, the music accelerates and a rhythmic mantra starts to develop in the congas and bongos. They kind of remain in the background, to be yeah. honest, but, uh, you, but you do hear them. Yeah, kind of a unusual movement. in an orchestra yeah. to hear these. Yeah, a dance-like movement. Salonen thinks of the orchestra in this movement as a giant lung, expanding and contracting, <laughs> first slowly but accelerating to a mild hyperventilation. At the end, the cello line climbs slowly up to a stratospherically high B-flat. Okay, the cello comes in, double-stopping in its lower register, um, inventive playing by Altstate here, keeping a droning sort of folk-like theme in the bass end as the upper part sings. This sounds really virtuosic and hard to play and very impressive. The, the voices are beautifully separated by the solo cellist. At a minute and 20 seconds and after, the tempo increases and we've got rapid cello figuration by a minute and 40 seconds. Uh, very impressive virtuosity here as congas and bongos accompany there's a primitive dance quality to the cello's melodic material. Under the cello, the orchestra is rapidly thumping out the rhythm in its different timbres. Uh, it's enticing to the ear. There are a lot of bell-like sounds, including one that registers as a bicycle bell to my ear. <laughs> Living in Japan, I hear them a lot. Uh, the cello emerges in a solo bit after four minutes with a pizzicati, and then there's an intriguing rhythmic figure at about four minutes and 30 seconds. The writing is appealing and inventive for the cello, and Altstate makes all of this seem natural to the musicality of the instrument, which speaks highly of his ear and his virtuosity. Um, the orchestra swells f uh, after five minutes, like breaking waves. This is probably the lung part that I was thinking of. I kind of thought of it as roiling waves, but um, Salonen thinks of it as a lung. I like the wild material in the cello in the sixth minute and the percussion. Uh, material is conjured up and morphs rapidly into something else. There are a lot of ideas in this movement. A lot of sounds are inventively conjured for the cello. I'm guessing that from the seventh minute into the eighth minute, we're getting the uh, hyperventilation part that Salonen mentions in his uh, booklet notes. Um, the cello part is pretty wild, and it takes an impressive player with all the rhythmic changes and double stops. Arpeggiated runs in the cello in the 11th minute with look-ins by the percussion and chiming accompaniment in the background. The speed is very impressive here considering the complexity of what's being played. At uh, 12 minutes and 12 seconds about, the cello is at its highest note, and then we hear the odd bird-like slides on what I think is the cello, or it's a recorded, I don't know what it is. It fades, and that's the end of the piece. And, uh... 
the there's crowd applause goes wild. at the end. I was yeah. rather surprised by that. Mm. Uh, it's an impressive live. This is even more impressive considering that everything you heard was performed live in front of an audience. Mm. Like there were no uh, take twos or anything. The applause is warm, and I wonder if the audience understands what it just heard because <laughs> it was pretty amazing. It's amazing virtuosity, but they kind of give it like kind of like a golf clap sort of thing. <laughs> anyway, I rather like this. Um, yeah. Um, you know, really modern pieces like this can be hit and miss for me because sometimes you just get lost in the weeds right. and you wonder, you know, what's going on? What am I supposed to get out of this? Uh, but this one I find is really listenable. Uh, one, because it's exciting. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff happening. Uh, even if you might not grasp the structure, uh, it's constantly changing and evolving. Uh, so a lot like of new, ideas, new That's windows, impressive. new yeah. windows opening into different uh, ideas right. that are happening. So it, it really draws you in to uh, keep listening to what's unfolding. Uh, next, because it has a rich tonal palette, uh, mm-hmm. the sounds of the orchestra are, are used really well. There's uh, like that wedge you were talking about comes with like a, an, a brass edge on it. And right. so you hear that brass coming in. Uh, the strings are contrasted well, as long with, you know, the different tones of the cello going from warm to biting. Uh, also, there's a lot of rhythmic variety in both the orchestral patterns and what the cello is doing. And then the cello is asked to do a rather you know, very wide spectrum of unusual techniques. It sounds like sometimes Mm -hmm. he's bouncing the bow, uh, getting these kind of harmonics, uh, all kinds of strange things going on. Uh, And they all sound really cool. Uh, It, you know, it doesn't have traditional harmony uh, in a rich way, but the sounds work together Mm -hmm. and you can follow the flow of what he's doing with whatever harmonic systems he's working with. Uh, So I found it easy to follow and kind of exciting uh for a modern piece uh, it drew me in and was impressive and exciting at the same time so yeah i think this piece is going to stick around i mean and the other thing about it too it's been lucky on record so mm-hmm. it had two really good recordings so right. far the first by yo-yo ma of course and now this one um very impressive performances by both uh cellists mm-hmm. so uh i think it's kind of i think we're going to be hearing a little more of it mm. anyway this particular recording, unlike the Yo-Yo Ma, which only had the um, the cello concerto and that was it, um, here um, uh, Nicholas Ouchstate, um includes uh, Maurice Ravel's Sonata in A Minor for Violin and Cello, composed in 1920 to 1922, and uh, this was recorded on October 2019. I should mention that the cello concerto we just heard was composed in 2017, so it's a relatively mm. new piece. And this particular performance was recorded in 2018, uh, December 2018. Oh. So it's a little old. I mean, it was mm. recorded right after the piece, um, you know, was written. But I guess um, Yo-Yo Ma gave the premiere, and I guess he had the uh, the rights to it for a while. Okay. So it, this didn't get recorded. This didn't get released until recently. Mm. Or he um, sat on it. That. Sat on it for a while because he didn't want them to be, you know, too close in release time. Yeah, not only that, but sometimes if a piece is written for with a particular musician in mind, that musician gets like a certain number of years where it's solely his piece and he can mm. kind of tour it around. It's it's kind of like a little present for him. And then other cellists get it later if they want it, you know. Anyway, so Ravel, 
Um, this this piece, um, I guess, is around a uh, hundred years old this year. It doesn't. Nineteen twenty-two uh, was when it was finished. Uh, the composition finished. Okay, so this starts the Allegro, and um, the opening of this is pretty measured and mechanical in this particular um, recording. Now it's a it's a mechanical opening anyway. Um, Ravel intends it to sound mechanical, and the cello gets lyrical while the violin starts shaping his line while keeping in the mechanical rhythm. It's kind of interesting. They're going for a really different approach than I've heard before here. Um, it speeds up as the volume increases. I like this performance for its slight inventiveness in approaching the melodic contours. Now, the melodies are shaped differently than I've heard on other recordings, and that draws the ear in. Uh, changes of tempo aren't as dramatic as on the Kennedy Harrell recording, which is my favorite one. Um, the violinist Kennedy and uh, cellist Lynn Harrell, originally on EMI Records, but I guess now it would be on Warner Classics. Uh, these Altstadt and Cusisto, uh, this Altstadt and Cusisto recording, or I should say Cusisto and Altstadt, to put the violinist first, are after something different. I love the harmonics after 3 minutes and 30 seconds. In spite of the mechanical beginning, these two draw a humanity out of this movement that I haven't heard before. It tends to stay kind of cold, okay? This, And I, I like it for that, but in this case, they pull a bit of humanity out of it. The it's phrasing sensitive. is really nice, I think. Uh, Which and one? The, the phrasing in this movement and the, uh, yeah. the dynamics uh, along with the phrasing sort of enliven the lines in this so yeah and also their their tones really blend together nicely uh yeah. you know of each instrument so yeah this is a sensitive performance and it's also very quietly recorded you'll have to turn it up to get the nuances uh, especially the gorgeous ending on the harmonics of both instruments it's almost inaudible if you have it turned down all right the second movement très vif uh, effects are highly nuanced and quiet. Uh, there's a good sense of line in this movement, and it sounds like it's played at a slightly faster tempo than I've heard in previous recordings. And it works well like this. Mm. Uh, the sudden forte chords aren't terribly harsh. On the Kennedy Harrell recording, they are. They really want to make it dramatic. But I like them like this. I like them, you know, played down, the harshness played down a bit. Um, I think the harshness is supposed to be there, though, so... Anyway, the violin pulls some odd changes of tone when he gets the drawn-out notes. The cello answers with straight playing. After about a minute and 50 seconds, the two echo each other. Um, there are beautiful breathed-out harmonics at 2 minutes and 30 seconds. Be sure to hear those. And I liked the sudden slowing of tempo. The violin goes for an ugly sound in his last melody after 3 minutes, which draws the ear in. Uh, the ending pizzicato pops quietly, not as startlingly as the Kennedy Harrell recording. That's really my go-to recording, so I always kind of reference that. Third movement, Lant, and uh, along with the first movement, my favorite movement, I like these two. The cello has the opening melody, and he takes it very slowly this time, so the hook doesn't quite come out, and these musicians want us to focus on the harmony. Uh, given the tempo. Uh, so we're hearing the note against note part more than we're hearing the melodic material due to the tempo. This is very quietly recorded, and you'll have to turn it up to really um, pick up what's going on. Cuisisto goes for a lot of uglier sounds for contrast. Now, I'm using the word ugly. I don't know. Maybe there's a better word for it, but he wants 
he he wants this contrast here. There's a particularly harsh sound to the ensemble at the, as the crescendo at around uh, three minutes and twenty seconds comes in. This is all to draw out the harmony, which makes the instruments clash. Um, I like the slow, almost frozen emotion at four minutes and thirty seconds. Uh, this movement isn't coming across as reassuringly as it has in the past. That's by design. Um, they want it to be a little troubling, I think. These two musicians. It's got a very subtle and quiet ending. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, I prefer the, you know, the the more familiar version. But this was really intriguing. I liked what they did here. I liked the chances they took. Fourth movement, vif avec entrain. A rather swashbuckling beginning as the cello plays a theme where the bow is bouncing off the strings, which the violin picks up and continues with. There are some intriguing harsh sounds in the movement. The violin really slashes at its sudden chords. There are slight pauses before the violin plays a slithering downward figure. Um, The sounds, again, especially by Cuisisto, are designed to change one's perception of the piece. So if you already know this piece, this is really a performance for you because he wants to... Mm-hmm. give you something else if you're hearing it for the first time i say hear the kennedy and lynn harrell recording first the middle section started by the cello at two minutes and 35 seconds is taken at a quicker pace than usual uh, the opening material returns and we've got good momentum to the end again the pizzicato that ends the piece is underplayed so we're left more with the impression of the final bowed notes we hear uh, I thought this was a pretty original reading of the piece and a successful one, but I prefer my tried and true versions, especially Kennedy Harrell. I'll listen to this again, though. I liked it. It was um, it really kind of caught my ear. Yeah, I enjoyed the, as I said, the blend of the two instruments, and uh, I like what they did with uh, dynamic contrast throughout the movements, uh, bringing out uh, the differences in the lines along with the phrasing and the variance of tone uh, going in between kind of softer, uh, sweeter tones on the legato passages and then ending up in the final movement. It gets really kind of biting and dissonant, but uh, it ends kind of satisfyingly. Uh, So in kind of enjoying this uh, performance in contrast with the big orchestral sound, as you say, it's... uh, recorded at a rather low level. Uh, I think that picks up the dynamic contrast nicely, but you'll have Mm. to sort of snuggle up or turn the volume up to uh, get the uh, nuances of a lot of the things they're doing here. Right. Okay. And there's your classical for this week. And you had said something about getting a visit from sexy ladies. What's going on with that? That's right. Well, I don't know uh, how it all began, but... uh, (laughs) (laughs) I have a huge uh, listening list now. It's 28 pages long. Yeah, mine uh, suddenly got bigger too. I yeah. got the next three or four weeks planned actually already, so I'm all set. I can relax and, a bit. Uh, so there's you know hundreds and hundreds of uh, albums I've got on there in different categories. And uh, the sax list was uh, getting kind of big. And I noticed, and I don't know if it was because uh, March was... Uh, Women's History Month or something like that, but uh, there were lots <laughs> oh, of right. uh, lots of ladies showing up in the new recordings as leaders, and uh, just within a short amount of time, I had uh, a bunch of uh, female sax players on my list. So I thought, uh, well, that could be an interesting grouping, and uh, we could call it Saxy Ladies. Uh, yeah, and that would be a good we're title. Looking for a- yeah, we have some, we have a whole bag full of these uh, sax <laughs> kind clickbait, of um, clickbait titles. So. We're going for the clickbait. We're shameless. Yeah. What can we say? We got the 
pink neon logo. Clickbait yeah. title. There you go. And actually, I got a couple more. I'll mention them at the end that you know didn't um, make the cut uh, for time and other reasons, but I'll just throw them out there. Uh, but the first two on the list here have gotten a lot of jazz press. Uh, so I saw these uh, in the magazines and websites and stuff. So I thought, well, okay, uh, let's uh, line them up. And so I'm lining them up in uh, uh, saving the best for last, at least for me. Um, no, for me too. Yeah. I, so know, it's, I know what it's going to yeah, be. Yeah. yeah. There was one that was head and shoulders above the rest yeah. for us. And probably given our taste. slip <laughs> under the radar and into jazz obscurity for most listeners, just because of the label and where it comes from. But and because it's not on a CD, because that yeah. means it might slip from my memory too, unless they release. I think a CD. you can get it. I found the, uh, I did find the record label webpage, and oh, it's so you have to get it from the record label yeah. webpage. Yeah, at least here, maybe in Europe. I don't know. Uh, anyway, we'll get to all of that. Uh, we're going to start out though uh, on the Blue Note label. Uh, which is probably why this got a lot of press, because uh, everyone knows Blue Note. Uh, this is the tenor saxophonist Melissa Aldana and her new recording, 12 Stars. Now, she got a Grammy nomination in the past. That was with uh, Artemis, the ensemble. Right, the ensemble. She's the all, the all women ensemble. Yeah, uh, so that got a lot of... Um, attention. Uh, she's originally from Santiago, Chile, uh, now Brooklyn-based. So she's gotten uh, some attention as a band leader. And uh, also uh, here, she's got an album that's uh, dealing with some different life topics as an inspiration that she mentions, uh, child-rearing, uh, familial forgiveness, acceptance, self-love, and uh, her deep interest in tarot. Which, you know, which is where the title comes from. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. So anyway, um, this album is produced by the guitarist on here, uh, Lege Lund, who also uh, performs uh, with, uh, let's see, who else we have on here. Uh, so as I said, Aldana on tenor sax, uh, Lund, uh, the producer and guitar, Sullivan Fortner on piano and Fender Rhodes, Kush Abade on drums and Pablo Menares on bass. And we start out with a track called Falling. Uh, this one begins kind of a bass heartbeat uh, with a guitar intro. Uh, the piano comes in. Uh, Lind adds some spacey guitar effects, uh, which come up a lot on this recording. Yeah. Um, then Aldana comes in on the melody, uh, which is kind of sparse with a lot of space, uh, you'll be struck by her sound, which is rather small sound for a tenor saxophone. Uh, it works well when she goes up into the higher register uh, on the next segment of the melody, and she does like to work in the higher register, which is all the more unique. Uh, in this case, it comes out in unison with the guitar. Her solo here is kind of explorative, uh, in this free landscape that's created uh, with the sounds and also Abade's open style of drumming uh, and these low and dense uh, chords way down below by Fortner. Uh, she adds a lot of extended notes, often in the high register again. Uh, Fortner has a piano solo here too. It floats over the rhythms, lots of cascading ideas. Lund is restrained through most of the tune. Uh, he adds chords and the occasional strange effect. Um, and then after a return to the melody, Aldana blows some flurries, uh, ending in an unexpected honk. Uh, it's a kind of <laughs> modern 
feel uh, rather loose uh, in the way that it hangs together, but they seem comfortable with it. Yeah, it's pretty appealing to the listener, too. Mm. It's not, you know, not a really uh, tough listen. So most of these, uh, well, the first track and this next one are both credited to both Lund and uh, Aldana as writers. Next, we've got Intuition. This one begins with Lund and a muted rhythmic groove on guitar. Uh, let's get some piano sprinkles on top, if you imagine like a cupcake uh, with those little sprinkles <laughs> on there. Uh, Aldana comes in on the melody, and again, Lund comes in in unison there. Uh, Abade keeps a kind of processional beat on snare underneath uh, that drops out uh, for effect that you notice it's gone. There's a dreamy section of strange chords in contrast to the main melody before it returns. Aldana solos more melodically on this tune than the opening track. She has some fast-running passages that contrasts with uh, more high-register ideas. Uh, Lynn takes a solo with free-running lines and a deep-sea reverb. I mean, this is almost like a sonar sound you're going to hear <laughs> coming th you know, through the walls of a sub or something. Uh, they repeat the melody, and Aldana and Lynn get a little more uh, free time over the piano chords before the tune slows to the end. Uh, it's a relaxed overall vibe to this tune. Hmm. Uh, next, we've got... Uh, a tune by Pablo Menares, uh, Intro to Amelia. Um, so the, the following tune is Amelia. So this is just a kind of little uh, snippet here. It's a bass line uh, set with some kind of pitch bendy guitar that creates a swirling atmosphere uh, into the actual Amelia, uh, which is uh, by Lund and Aldana. Um, the bass and guitar uh, now kind of create a regular slow groove in four, for a ballad melody by Aldana. There's thick roads and guitar chords that make a dense, fuzzy bed of sound uh, under Aldana's clear sax in contrast. Uh, Lynn solos first, again fluid, but his sound is like it's under a fuzzy blanket uh, that Grandma knitted in the closet. Menaris uh, mm. has a relaxed bass solo here. Uh, Aldana gets a lyrical and legato solo uh, tying back into the melody. Uh, while Abade works a del delicate symbol textures throughout uh, with punctuations on the peaks of phrases. Uh, Aldana gets an interesting warble in sound near the end, and rather than resolving on a final chord, the tune ends in a sound clip of a child kind of singing with music. Uh, it's it's pretty, kind of eerie. Yeah, mm. but with a psychedelic dreaminess in the thick roads and guitar tones. Yeah, it uh, kind of sounded like a melted vinyl record at yeah. the end. <laughs> I, want, I want to mention, though, I read about Amelia, the, the genesis of the, the inspiration mm -hmm. for this tune was a dream that Aldana had of having a baby girl by this name, so it's not a real person. Oh, okay. It's, yeah. An imaginary child. It's an imaginary child. Yeah. Uh, the next one, mm -hmm. The Bluest Eye, again, Lund and Aldana composition. That's from the Toni Morrison book, by the way, that title. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aldana comes in over bass and drums on the melody before piano and guitar add some harmonic backing. The melody has some really high notes for a tenor sax, uh, and Lund joins in in unison. Uh, Abade pushes the melody forward with fills, and it lightens up for Aldana's solo start. She's in the mood for faster phrases here that are broken up 
uh, by some two-note ideas with space in between. Fortner has a piano solo while the bass takes off on some fast walking underneath. Uh, Lund comes out next, starting with some double-stopped ideas, then some cool delayed attack chords uh, and descending runs. They come back for more of the melody. Things get a little weird at the end with some low ominous sound effects. Track six is The Fool, another Lund and Aldana composition. A guitar lead starts this one slowly over the piano, uh, with time being kept on the cymbals. There's some phasery kind of effects that are added, and things pick up more motion as Aldana enters with a melody line, nicely doubled by the bass in spots. Uh, I like that kind of contrast. Fortner has a piano solo, and then Lund. Abade keeps straight beat going most of the time. There's a lot of washy sound again underneath throughout everything. Uh, Aldana comes back with the melody before taking a solo of her own, and Menaris has a nice bass groove going on underneath as things get murky again with the guitar effects. Um, the next one, uh, Los Ojos de Chile, uh, The Eyes of Chile, I guess, another Lund Aldana yeah. composition. It's got a waltzy or 6-8 kind of feel to the tune. The sax and guitar work unison melody lines which diverge into independent improv ideas at the end of phrases over piano chords. Aldana shows off her surprising high register on tenor here again. It has a lightness and motion. Fortner has a piano solo that has loose flowing lines and clusters of chords, and Lund's guitar solo has lines chasing after each other uh, and tighter rhythmic licks. The drums and bass surprisingly break into a driving swing beat uh, toward the end of Lund's solo. Uh, the freer beat resets for some more uh, melody lines from sax and guitar, and Aldana gets a solo next, getting down in the lower register for a bit, and then with a lot of snaky lines and some more intense squawky tone on notes before mellowing out for the slowing ending. Uh, Lund has some spacey synthy tones uh, going on under her solo in this tune as well. Then we end up with uh, the title track, 12 Stars, another Lund Aldana composition. Uh, a long note with a pitch waver on sax over some synthy guitar tones and road piano chords lead into a soft and slow melody. Aldana weaves lines over the washy mix, adding some pitch fluttering, but keeps it mostly pretty. And there's a long fade over a low piano note and more synthy sounds. Well... Yeah, I didn't warm up to this recording too much. Um, Aldana has an interesting and an individual tone on tenor sax, uh, especially uh, in the higher register. Uh, but I wasn't drawn into the tunes as much as I had hoped, and I was rather distracted by the synthy sounds and murkiness of some of the sort of wash made by the guitar and piano tones in the same register, making kind of a sound soup. And um, I don't know, I, I feel a, maybe a little bit lack of kind of passionate oomph in Aldana's playing. Uh, to me, it doesn't really resonate a lot. So it was somewhat interesting, but um, overall, I think it's the weakest of the three releases that I picked here. Yeah, that's not to say it's bad, though. Um, I thought you said that she has a small tone. One of the words I used was like dry. It's kind of, it really does have like a kind of, you know, this kind of mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, having all the water sucked out of it, kind of like dryness 
to, right. to the tone. It's pretty easily identifiable. I bet I could. Well, I couldn't probably say, "Oh, this is Moses Aldana." If I was hearing it on a record randomly, you know, in a, in a public space somewhere, I bet I could pick her out of an ensemble. Um, I thought the concept of the album was interesting. I warmed to it a bit as it went on. I didn't dislike it. It's pretty arty, but appealingly so. They're interesting sounds, nicely recorded. Uh, the piano guitar sound especially lovely when the guitar isn't playing with the harmonics really with the electric the electronics really um when they're both playing uh quiet non-legato material um uh, yeah i liked i liked the concept to the whole tarot card thing it makes it a little mysterious <laughs> so i thought this was pretty good i i was interested to hear it okay you liked it more than i did yeah and i i'll probably revisit it but um you know i wasn't like I think I think it's the kind of recording that takes a few listens to really, uh, you know, pick up, you know, what what she's after because it's a little, it's not familiar. It's unfamiliar. Let's hmm. just say that. I mean, they're they're new original compositions, so yeah. I think it'll take a bit to get them in your ear. All right. Next up, now how's this for a sexy name, Roxy? Roxy. Oh, uh, uh, Roxy costs. New release, Disparate Parts, on the Outside in Music label. Uh, this, let's see, originally from Seattle, Washington, and she won the Herb Alpert Young Jazz Composer Award in 2016. She was named a rising star in Downbeat's mm. Critic Poll for seven years in a row. And this wow. is her sixth album as a leader. Uh and uh, she's got the same uh, group of musicians here, I think, on the last several recordings. In 2018, she had uh, The Future is Female on Positone. And uh, 2019, uh, Quintet, that's the title, uh, on Outside in Music. And uh, at this one, she was, uh, it says, uh, seven months pregnant at recording. Wow. A lot of things going on, I guess. Here she is. Uh, Does, doesn't seem to slow her down any. <laughs> no. On tenor and soprano sax. Uh, very cool guitarist on here. Alex Wintz, Miki Yamanaka on piano, Rick Rosato on bass, and Jimmy McBride on drums. One curious thing about this recording is it sort of has uh, bookends or little it's musical... This recurring sort of um, yeah. theme... They takes on a uh, title called February uh, with different takes sort of spaced out throughout the recording. I don't know if they're like a uh, musical palette cleansing or something to get you uh, ready for the next new composition. They're all sort of uh, similar in the basis of the concept, but they do different things uh, in each yeah. version. Uh, you know, most of them start out with this really exciting sort of propulsive sort of thing and then all of a sudden like just after the first one or two notes is played it's like somebody turns up this gravity machine and it all just kind of like yeah it gets yeah. really heavy i thought that was really funny so anyway the album begins with take three of february uh it's a drum chord hit and an intro sax riff uh, that lead into this dizzying alternating pitches on guitar mm -hmm. uh, some added piano textures and then freeform tenor soloing on top and it's over after uh, just more than a minute uh, so these are short uh, little interludes here yeah they're they're all rhythmless too they just kind of sound like uh floating in space yeah, sort of. da, 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 yeah. that kind of well there's there's that there. okay yeah but everybody isn't following right. that necessarily 
All right, so we've got the disparate parts theme, which corresponds to uh, the sort of parts of existence that are uh, the compositions here. And part one is the body. Uh, mm. This one starts out with some intense drumming, uh, angry triplet guitar and piano chord intro into a fast swinging melody played by Koss with counter lines by Wince on guitar. Uh, there's a softer contrasting triplet section where the beat changes up and then they hit the angry opening theme again with Koss growling over the top and then hmm. uh, coming out bopping when the swing thing returns. Uh, Yamanaka knocks out the chords on electric piano underneath uh, and Rosato walks the bass. They cycle through the sections again. The growling sax give way, gives way to some guitar shredding by Wintz, uh, who also makes the transition to bopping over the swing rhythms, uh, albeit with a huge overdriven rock type tone. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of unusual. Uh, he yeah. keeps going around the cycle again, impressing with technique and cool melodic licks. Uh, Koss and Wintz take the melody and counter melody section again uh, into the triplet feel to close it out. Uh, Nice contrasting sections to the composition, which uh, seems to be a feature on this album. Yeah, and Koss has this really great tone as well. It's like really kind of big and like you, it's it makes its presence felt. I really rather like that. Could say she has a ballsy sound. Yeah, well, there you go. I just said I would it. say that. I'll say it again. I'll say it again. <laughs> Part two: the mind. Uh, this one begins with some swirly synthy washes uh, that lay a base for rising. Uh, and falling waves of sax lines uh, kind of chasing after each other. Uh, I'm not quite sure how they recorded this, if it's like a, a, an overdub or, or what's going on, but it's pretty cool. Uh, a sudden rhythmic tribal melody theme emerges in unison in the guitar and sax pushing forward. It seems to have phrases uh, in five beats at some points, uh, but I'm not sure, and I got tired of counting and figuring out what's going on. <laughs> um, Yamanaka plays uh, electric piano chords underneath uh, and in the gaps, and then she takes a solo, getting some nice distortion and funky phaser effect uh, that you know some of those old uh, electric piano sounds were really cool at. Uh, McBride keeps it driving with lots of cymbal action, uh, pounding it out and ending in a kind of synthy whoosh of a sound. Uh, they go back to the tribal theme uh, with a little electric piano jamming out at the end. Next tune is part three, of the disparate parts, the heart. Uh, Koss plays a slinking waltz-like melody. Uh, Wince joins in and adds some nice counter lines. And there are some uh, interesting transition phrases in unison with bass and piano. Uh, rather, the bass and piano are in unison with each other in contrast to the sax and guitar. McBride keeps the drumming uh, brushy and light, adding to the space in the arrangement. Uh, Rosato gets a deep and kind of mournful sounding bass solo here, and Koss uh, has a tenor solo next. It's flowing and breathy with some runs and flutters, but nicely restrained uh, to match the mood of the tune. They repeat the melody, uh, which slows out uh, nicely at the end. Part four, The Spirit, is track five. This is rhythmic and reverby guitar figures of four notes that repeat with some piano sprinkled on top. Again, those kind of cupcake sprinkles ideas. Uh, the harmonies change, <laughs> but a humming low tone, like a distant airplane engine, not in the chord, spreads out creating tension. This is really weird, uh, but interesting. Mm. Uh, is it bowed bass? I think so. Uh, Koss comes in on soprano sax with a delicate melody above. Ah, now the bowed bass shifts into the harmony and the world comes together. 
sort of this resonance has been achieved. Uh, McBride adds some drum fills and cymbal washes to the free-flowing mixture. Uh, Wince is released from his patterns and adds some melodic ideas under Koss's lines. As he gains momentum, a fast four-beat rhythm develops for a while, but soon breaks up into a rubato ending. An unusual but interesting and pretty composition. I think uh, this is one of those, uh, this is one of the very rare jazz suites that gets the adult music uh, stamp of approval. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, track six, February, back to that uh, interlude kind of thing. This is take five, another take on this one with different results uh, and some more gaspy kind of ideas from Koss's sax. Seven, the title track, Disparate Parts, so kind of a hokey five-beat melody starts the tune with alternating bass and sax guitar notes. Uh, and then it breaks into a fast four-beat rhythm with a new sax melody and some spaces for guitar to improvise uh, and the beat to change up. They get back to the original melody for a bit before Koss launches into a solo over the driving swing and Yamanaka's electric piano chords. It's a nice minor hard bop groove. Uh, the groove changes up before reforming into swing as Wince takes a burning guitar solo. Uh, all the effects are off here, and we hear his clean articulation with more of a raw tone. It slows up, and they vamp around for some drum fills uh, by McBride, and then some electric piano doodling from Yamanaka as the drums drop out and it comes to a stop. Track eight, Ely. Ely, Minnesota? I don't yeah, know. Minnesota. Hmm. That's a town. I don't know what the... Uh, could it be Eli? I don't know. It's Eli is the pronunciation. It's Eli. But I don't know what the um, reference is because I don't have the album notes. Uh, Probably town of Minnesota, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know okay. why, but <laughs> that's the name oh, of the time. Uh, it's a pretty melody. Uh, they use the same formula with guitar and sax sharing the melody, uh, this time with a Latin-feeling beat and shifting syncopated bass line. Yamanaka keeps the piano chords, uh, helps out with syncopated accents. The melody line has a lot of rhythmic change-ups to keep things interesting. Wince gets a liquidy flowing solo on this one, uh, getting a kind of rounded edgeless tone uh, and Koss works a lot in the lower register in this solo showing a nice husky uh, tone on the tenor I like the rhythmic bounce in her phrases it really has that kind of um, springy kind of feel to it uh, Yamanaka goes rhythmic in her solo too she starts out liking one note a lot uh, <laughs> then she gets chimey with a lot of chords that keep uh, peppering in tight right hand rhythmic figures over those in in between McGride McBride has a uh, tight fills along the way with good cymbal work. It's an overall sparse and airy arrangement uh, that works well. After that, track nine, we're back to uh, the old February interlude uh, here. This is the first take, take one. Uh, it's another version. Uh, Koss showing some kind of controlled squawkiness uh, in her freeform improvisations on this one. Uh, 10, Mabes, M-A-B-E-S. Uh, a waltz with a lot of motion. Sax and guitar work the melody for the first section, and then the guitar splits off on the second section a bit under the sustained uh, sax notes. Wince solos first on guitar, uh, featuring some kind of minor blues ideas with clear articulation on his melodic lines. Koss is next over the chugging bass line of Rosado. Uh, she starts out with more waltzy kind of uh, feeling things. It gets a little bluesy, uh, 
having a lot of smooth flowing lines, uh, but she keeps a laid back feel even when playing fast. They bring back the waltzy melody for another round to the end. Track 11 is called Sunburn. Here we've got uh, soprano sax samba. Bass drums and guitar really get the motion going here and Wince's chords are super tight. Really great feel as Koss floats on the melody uh, with the soprano above. Uh, Yamanaka comes in and adds to the motion below, gets the uh, first solo on piano. It's rhythmic, enthusiastic. Uh, Rosado is up next for some busy bass work. And then they go through a little chord interlude uh, that McBride uh, charges up for. And uh, then they have some gaps for him to do some light and tasty drumming. They review the melody and then Wince jams out uh, for some uh, more uh, fun over some kind of synthy tropical washes that come in at the end. Uh, fun tune, a little Latin uh, spice there. Track 12, back to February again, take four <laughs> this time. Uh, this one has I really more... enjoyed these more and more as they went on. Yeah. So I kind of started to get it more, yeah. I think, as I heard them. This one has some more disturbing dissonances and distortions of tone uh, in this version of it here. They're all short, just over a minute. Uh, and then uh, we're on to the last full track called Warm One. This one has a kind of slow loping eight beat phrase uh, that's marked uh, by the bass pickup and downbeat notes uh, and the guitar and piano chords. Tenor sax and guitar work the sparse melody harmonized this time with the guitar breaking off for fills. Uh, and Wince trade and interweave improvised lines over shifting harmonies. Yamanaka has a relaxed piano solo here, building up to some big chords and high chimes and runs. McBride fills in the gaps with busy fills. Uh, then sax and guitar join back in uh, with legato phrases, quiets down to an outro that mirrors the intro. And the album finishes up with the final version of February, which is take two. Uh, and this one has more of a def definite kind of ending riff that gives closure. Maybe that's why they saved it for the end. And that's it. Uh, so I liked Koss's sound and playing on here. Uh, she has a variety of stylistic phrasing approaches at her command that she uh, matches to whatever style of the overall tune that's going on. Her soprano tone is good too. Uh, it adds to the variety on the recording. The compositions are all interesting. Uh, they have a lot of variety of rhythmic feels and different kind of modes of emotional expression. The band plays together tightly, and especially Wince stands out as a real creative voice, both in his uh, accompaniment uh, to Koss's uh, lines and then in his own imaginative solos. So uh, definitely Koss can play with the big boys anytime she wants to. Yeah, I thought uh, the variety... Um I pulled out the whole idea of the variety in this too, mm. uh, especially after hearing the Aldana recording. This one really stood out a lot more. It, it, kind of, it had more kind of like you know rhythmic excitement to it, and just sort of these sort of contrasts. Remember in the um, in the classical section, we were talking about the Baroque music, how it just changes from verse to verse. There was a mm -hmm. lot of that happening. Yes. Not verse to verse, but just section to section. Sections are of, very different in here. Yeah, the rhythmic feels, the phrasing, everything changes up. A lot of interesting sounds, and Costas playing is really pretty fantastic too. I can see why she won all those um, awards. I mean, she's she's really appealing. Um, yeah. It was a really interesting album. Uh, different styles are integrated by solo material. It's really only the solo material that really brings these, you know, the rock guitar and then like the the more kind of Pat Metheny type sound and other tracks together. It it's appealing and aggressive, simple and complex by turns. 
um, an adventurous listen a little bit, uh, one worth engaging in. It's the, the, um, the really kind of more adventurous parts are kind of like leavened a bit by some, some, a little bit of sugar occasionally, you know, Mm -hmm. so they make it, you know, you know, make it worth listening to. It's funny how one moment it can be sunny and carefree, the next moment aggressive and charging forward. And I just thought it was a really intriguing. I kind of want to hear it again. And I'm sure I will do that. What I liked about it too is unlike the Aldana previous recording, there's a lot going on. You know, when you got guitar and piano, you've got two kind of harmony instruments uh, and with, you know, sort of the wash of electric piano and some of the effects on the guitar you can get sort of, you know, swamped with uh, too much yeah. sort of going on that you can't pick things out clearly. But most of the tunes are kind of refreshingly not overdone. Uh, mm-hmm. In other words, the players are listening to each other and not stepping on each other's toes. So I felt there's a lot of space uh, still being left in the arrangements and what's going on. So I, I like that because uh, I could hear what everyone was doing quite clearly. Now for this uh, week's uh, big find. I, I think this one is going to be on my favorite list. <laughs> yeah, this already. one is almost inevitably on both uh, yeah. of our favorite lists of the year. I think this is going on mine too. I looked through yeah. a, a list. Uh, I'm not going to give away my sources, but uh, it it comes out every day with uh more jazz things than I can actually listen to, yeah, uh, but I, I try to situation go, in classical as well. Yeah, I try to go through it because it has some you know deep finds from around the world uh, that you won't find out about uh, until it's too late, or you won't find out at all if you just look at the, the major press. Uh, but this was uh, something that intrigued me as soon as I saw uh, the impossible uh, <laughs> instrumentation <laughs> that we've got here, and uh, so this is an album. It's called Berionda, and it's on yeah. everyone's favorite jazz label, Jazzwerkstatt. <laughs> you know that one, right? <laughs> uh, I think they just made it up. Yeah. You know, just kind of <laughs> but uh, we've got here uh, the leader, our Should final- be a blue note as far as I'm concerned. Sexy lady, uh, Helga Frankensteiner. Hmm. And- well, uh, she's from an interesting place. Uh, she's uh, South Tyrolean. Wow. Um, and so that's sort of like that really, really northern part of Italy, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Where actually, I think uh, more than, it's like 60 some percent of the population are actually German speakers. So the interesting thing about this album, although uh, I think that uh, Plankensteiner is a multi-instrumentalist, uh, and a band leader on her own. Uh, this project that she's working on is uh, f- all focused on one of our favorite instruments, the Barry Sax. Oh, yeah. She played with Carla Blay, a uh, big band, back in the 2009, uh, I think. And uh, so she's got some experience here. And she's got this uh, Barry Onda project going, uh, not only with herself on Barry Sax, but three other Barry Saxes. <laughs> Actually, there's so much Barry Sax, there's no room for any other instruments except a little drumming. Uh, so we've got uh, also on Barry Sax, uh, Javier Girotto uh, from Argentina, mm-hmm. uh, Florian Brambach, uh, an Austrian Barry Sax player. And then we've got uh, Giorgio Beberi, uh, I assume Italian, mm-hmm. uh, also 
on uh, Barry Sachs. So you got four Barry Saxes. And uh, I'm a little bit confused about the drum player because uh, on the release notes, it says uh, Zeno de Rossi. Uh, mm. However, on her YouTube videos and on Deezer, the tunes show up with uh, Mauro Beggio listed mm. as well. And he, I know he's a dr an Italian drummer I've heard of before. So I'm, I'm not sure uh, if he's playing drums on some of the tracks or not. But that's it. Basically, you've got um, four Barry Saxes and drums. Are you intrigued? I am totally intrigued. Right. So the idea was... But um, I already heard the record. <laughs> they were uh, going to create this lineup to uh, kind of uh, tribute uh, the repertoire of great jazz uh, Barry Saxes, such as Jerry Mulligan, Pepper Adams, Harry Carney, uh, Serge Sharloff, uh, Gary Smilin, uh, and uh, some others. Uh, and so we've got some famous tunes and some of their own original tunes here. Uh, we're going to start out with uh, Monin, uh, the Charles Mingus tune. Uh, so originally, I think, 1959 uh, recording mm. featuring Pepper Adams. Uh, there's a great recording of the Mingus big band uh, from 1993 that has Ronnie Kuber, uh, who we featured on the podcast with Gary Smilin on uh, Tough Baritones, uh, right. playing this. Uh, it's, I still listen to that record. It's really good. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> this one starts out... Um, you, you get your woofers and subwoofers <laughs> ready. Uh, oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. The recording quality is great. <laughs> great. Uh, right away, you're blown away by the huge bluesy and bassy Barry solo uh, sax in the left channel. I assume it's uh, Plankensteiner herself because after she finishes the line, she asks, are you ready, guys? And uh, they yeah. all respond with an enthusiastic, yeah. And uh, they are ready. Um, and they are enthusiastic yeah. throughout. So they come in past mm. the riff around and then uh, come in with a wall of unison sound. <laughs> It'll bowl you over. Uh, they split off into harmonization and arrangement of different lines. Uh, then they trade off some solos that are also set apart by some great arrangement of the four saxes. Uh, one berry uh, even takes on the role of a walking bass for a band. Um, hmm. De Rossi gets a, a little drum fill before they get back at it and uh, the arrangement staying inventive and fun uh, all the way to the end. Now you can hear all the voices. Uh, they've all got kind of individual tones. Uh, and the other thing you'll be struck at uh, in this recording is the versatility of the Barry Sax in terms of uh, its kind of tonal palette and the range. Uh, you know, mm. so playing high to low register. I mean, of course, it's all rather low. Um, but it's amazing the different uh, things. You, you, I mean, when do you hear four Barry Saxes together? Uh, it's yeah. like sort of a lining up of you the You rarely planets. hear one. Yeah, you rarely <laughs> hear one enough. Uh, yeah. Track two, Praising Barundi. Uh, this is a Brambach original tune. Uh, this one, <laughs> really interesting beginning. <laughs> it starts out with some kind of stop-tonguing, uh, which creates a huge hmm. kind of, you know, sound coming out of the um, berries. It, it reminds me of like a bass marimba almost because of the mm. kind of sustain that it gets. Um, that starts out this tune with a few other squawks and berry effects that make an intro. Uh, then it's off to this loping minor melody. Uh, it's another great arrangement uh, and you'd be really stunned at the wide range of, uh, you know, 
expression that Barry Sachs is capable of. Uh, it's a very nimble Barry uh, solo here uh, with wonderful harmonized backing lines uh, and then one uh, Barry honking out the bass lines. Uh, really get your speakers moving on this one. Uh, they give another little stop-tonguing interlude before some more softer legato sections and the melody once more. It's a very cool arrangement. The whole album just has fabulous arrangements. Uh, this one's a lot of fun. Uh, track three, uh, Love and Love Again. I'm not sure where this tune comes from. Uh, it sounds familiar. Uh, it's a gospely waltz feel. Uh, uh, and the sexes start out and... Uh, then the drums uh, join in after it gets going. Uh, it features a lot of simultaneous improvisation as they slowly go through the pleading chord changes. Uh, they bring it down a bit for the final push through the melody. Uh, the highest part is way up in the high range uh, and uh, creates a really interesting effect. And the whole tune ends up on an unresolved chord. Uh, makes you just want to go back and listen to it again. I'd describe this as a swing dirge. Swingy dirge, <laughs> yeah. It's got this kind of gospel-y feel I felt to it. Um, I don't know where yeah. the tune comes from. Something New Orleans-y about yeah. it, you know, kind of like that. Now we've got know, New Orleans funeral kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, like know. a march funeral, but it's yeah. a waltz, actually. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, very intriguing. Track four, Lengauer. Let me see. Kartoffelsetzer. Kartoffelsetzer groups. groups. I think it's got something to do about potatoes, but I'm not exactly yeah, sure. Yeah, a, cart a Kartoffelsetzer is a potato planter. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and from Lengau, I guess, mm. which is in Austria. So, yeah. yeah uh, I, I don't think about potato planters as grooving. No. But, uh, <laughs> well, uh, it's a unison bluesy riff that gets split up and then syncopated with cool exchanges of parts. Uh, it works through some different sections with legato triplets and other cool riffs. Uh, there's some unexpected chord changes and interesting harmonizations, but the rhythmic grooves just keep driving it along. There are a few stops with glisses into you know new notes by each horn mm. uh, that surprise you. Uh, Derossi keeps a tight beat, pushing the tempos on the drums. Uh, midway through, it gets slow and soupy, uh, showing off big chords of moving berry parts. Uh, Derossi doodles a bit around the drum kit uh, with some rumbling toms, and after a pause, they come back in with the opening riff for another run through the crazy melody. Uh, wait for the final hit till you'll know that it's really over. And I, my comment on this is, das ist ein funky Kartoffelsetzer. <laughs> funky potatoes, baby. <laughs> um, we've got a, a couple, uh, well, they're called impro. Uh, not improv, what we would say in English. So maybe it's Italian. Yeah, uh, Impro. Impro. Yeah. Uh, so I assume these are just uh, some improvised fun, but they're kind of interesting. This one, Impro 1, has some breathy sounds and mysterious long tones that make these kind of flowing harmonic tensions uh, with some tongue-stopping effects added in. Uh, there's some mm. warbling pitches added for fun and more breath like the wind blowing everything away. Uh, it's just some fun with the sonic possibilities of these big saxes. Reminded me a bit of Ligeti, actually. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're right. Like the uh, what do you call it? These um, one of the, the string, one of the string orchestra yeah. works. I can't with mm -hmm. those really close harmonies. Right. Yeah, they're, they're kind yeah. of weaving things. Um, 
Yeah, mm. Interesting. Uh, track six, uh, it's a busy one here, a kind of a perpetual motion of rhythms. And so it's called Continuum. Uh, lots of busy rhythmic moving parts uh, before things uh, fade away after the start over some light drumming. And then waves of pulsing sax phrases come back in and out. A funky beat forms and a single berry solos rhythmically. A new arrangement of backing lines comes in and the rhythmic inventions keep coming and coming. There's a staccato spaced out uh, note section uh, for a little drum fun and then back to the busy continuing lines uh, that go right up to the end. Uh, track six, uh, get your yarmulkers out because it's muzzle it's track tough. seven, I think. Yeah, track seven. Track seven. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Track seven. Yeah. Uh, this one begins with a single rubato berry uh, with a mournful uh, and somewhat bluesy line. Uh, a huge bass note starts the groove and everyone joins in for the fun uh, on the riff. The parts here yeah. are great with a huge bass line, swaying harmonized melody lines, and a little ornaments added in. There's a nasty low and growling uh, berry solo. Uh, as it goes on, it modulates and the fun continues. Uh, they head back to the riff in sync together, leaving spaces for some drum fun. There's another dirty, dirty uh, berry sax solo that gets way up in the high register with some wailing tones, and they take the melody out and slow it down uh, for the end. Uh, so yeah, this this had a real kind of Jewish wedding yeah, yeah. kind of groove yep. to it. You yep. should mention just the title yep. gives that away, I guess. Yeah, a real fun one. Yeah. Uh, then we've got uh, a Jerry Mulligan tune, track eight, Etude for Franca, a very lush ballad arrangement. Uh, the harmonies are thick and warm. There's no drums, so it moves with a nice rubato pace. Uh, great synchronized phrasing. Uh, there's a heartfelt improvised solo with great agility. Uh, over these pretty chords uh, that move along underneath it on the way. And it's really something special in the combination of these horns. The the tonal quality of these you know four big beastly saxes can be so endearing and nice. You won't hear this uh, anywhere else. Uh, it's a real unique mixture. A uh, beautiful arrangement here. Uh, now we've got a, a Plankensteiner original, Barunda. Uh, this one starts with a funky single berry riff, sets off the mood for the others to join in on an arrangement of swaying lines. The drums keep a tight beat. The riff goes away and uh, two berries trade and overlap solo lines. It's like a fun conversation. Uh, midway things dissolve and then reform with the super tight horn arrangement and things continue with uh, overlapping rhythmic parts, building a groove and a solo added on top with some high register wailing. Uh, the drums take over for a bit, and then all the berries come back in together with a few final lines to end it all up. Hmm. Track 10 is another Jerry Mulligan tune. Uh, this is a real famous one, Bernie's tune. Uh, this is a great arrangement uh, of this swinging uh, minor signature tune of his. Uh, the part interplay is fabulous on the melody. A solo weaves over a bass line, uh, then a new tight arranged section. Uh, two berries then solo with each other uh, before the others join back in again. There's a lot going on here in this arrangement. They repeat the previous sections and then uh, 
the backing arrangement for the soloist changes up with more harmonized parts added. Uh, and the final version of the melody ends it all up. A real awesome arrangement here. Um, yeah. you, um, if you're a jazz fan, you know a cool jazz Jerry Mulligan, you'll know this melody well. And Mulligan would often have really good arrangements, especially if he was with another horn. Um, but, you know, like Paul Desmond or Chet Baker. But with four players, they've really maxed out and inventively uh, spread this out. Uh, you know, the harmonic possibilities and counter lines, uh, really wonderful. Uh, track 11, I Remember Dizzy. Uh, this one, I assume, is the original tune. Uh, it, it kind of captures uh, Dizzy's uh, Afro-Cuban uh, kind of things uh, that he did. It's a staccato riff that gets this kind of uh, groove going. Uh, everyone comes in on a thick thickly arranged melody and then they trade off solos that but they keep the riff and the harmonized lines going underneath trading off as they switch uh, solos as well the drums keep the excitement high with like cymbal tinging uh and a little bit of jamming as the saxes get together tightly on uh, a riff leaving some space then it's back to the beginning groove uh with a new repeated riff building tension to the end so kind of uh those afro-cuban bebop uh things uh, from the 40s are captured well uh, like Dizzy would do uh, now we've got the second impro number two this one has rubato interlacing sax lines that swirl around and then form into an ominous building riff <laughs> it gets kind of scary you think it might explode but it just phew, kind of deflates uh, instead uh, as these backs do you feel the berries are ganging up on you but they don't uh, cause any harm uh, and then uh, we end with another Mingus tune that uh, original recording fe uh, featured Pepper Adams, uh, Ora Decubitus. Um, it's another fun arrangement on the rhythmic intro uh, of open intervals. Uh, it's kind of like a tribal kind of sound. Uh, they get into some really tight harmonies then. Uh, there's a break and some free-flowing bluesy lines uh, from low and deep uh, to way up high. Uh, a pause and back to the funky interplay of the arrangement. It ends up with a crazy rhythmic stacking of parts that are just out of sync rhythmically that sound like they're echoing off the wall. Uh, a tension building pitch uh, bent tone that gets held out before a little pause and then it ends up with this satisfying uh, descending interval. Da-da. And that's the mm. end of the album. Uh, so what a great yeah. find this album was. Uh, it, like you say, we're lucky to hear one Barry Sax on a recording, uh, usually. And here it's all Barry Sax's. Uh, great arrangements that, you know, th they fill out everything uh, with bass lines, uh, moving parts of chords, uh, covering an amazing range of... Uh, for such a big instrument so you don't miss having a piano or anything everything is uh, done by sex uh exciting interplay and everyone's having a good time and that energy comes through on the whole recording uh yeah this is a really great and fun uh interesting album yeah in fact this is one of those recordings that, that i really live for you know you kind of it you just lamenting the fact that you're not really hearing anything new or things like that. And then something like this comes along, you are like, whoa, you know, you just, yeah. it's just a discovery. No one else has heard it. You've got it. You can play it for all your friends who, who like jazz and yeah. maybe, maybe they'll be wowed by it too. And uh, yeah, it was a lively, fun recording and, and a great 
uh, transparent recording as oh, well. Yeah. It's 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 beautifully recorded on top of all of yeah. this. Um, your ears will love this. Um, the only thing, I don't know, maybe your teeth fillings won't like it as much, <laughs> but uh, your ears certainly will. Yeah, this will. <laughs> I really liked it a lot. Definitely get your your woofers moving. Uh, the oh, the yeah. dynamic power of these berry saxes uh, actually cause uh, you know air to flow around your living space. Uh, they really right. push perfect it out for there. the summer. You're gonna need yep. that extra air in the room. Yep. Yeah, excellent. Uh, so this one goes on uh, the tentative best of uh, list yeah, already. Yeah, I think this is inevitably going to be in my top yeah, ten. This was a lot of, of fun. I mean, um, yeah. Now uh, there's a couple other ones. Uh, this one just quite didn't make the cut, but if you still want to meet some more sexy ladies, uh, a couple other things you can check out. Uh, this is a Ar- Argentinian. Uh, female sax player uh, on Greenleaf music, uh, Julieta Eugenio, uh, Jump. This came out in March as well. And uh, one that I've just started to listen to because it just came out uh, two days ago, but uh, veteran uh, UK uh, sax player Trish Close has a new one out called A View with a Room. And uh, I may have included that, but I didn't have enough time to listen to it uh, this week. Uh, so yeah, we might still do it. Yeah, I mean, it's on. Know, those two are on my list. Um, but the sax list is long, and uh, yeah. you know we'll see uh, how things. We, come this around. needs to be a daily program. Our main jobs and got we'll more than enough. We could do this uh, every day. Yeah. And actually, someone right. should hire us as uh, you know DJs, or you know since we <laughs> we're going to be DJs too. <laughs> since well, since um, since we promote Deezer, I think they should just hire us. Their jazz curation uh, list is slow. Uh, yeah. doesn't have a lot of variety. Uh, it doesn't get updated enough. Just hire us. We can do our daily jazz program and put the new releases list up there. Uh, I'm sure we could make the classical one better too. Yeah, we um, did the classical one too. Yeah. So I've always thought that about Apple. You know, I look at Apple's like classical. I could do this better. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know? So I don't know. I didn't send them a resume though. So they, you, you know. know, when I look at these, like you know, the list. New releases. It's all the usual suspects, you know. It's like, okay, yeah. um, what else you got? Um, but yeah, give give somebody something uh, new like this uh, this baritone sax yeah. uh, recording. Just kind of something really different, surprising, good. Yeah, you got something to tell your friends now. Yeah, <laughs> something. Know. I've got a bunch of interesting stuff uh, coming up. Uh, so do I. Finally, <laughs> it's like spring yeah. seems to be the big. Uh, the big classical albums are coming yeah. out this spring now, so there's a lot of good stuff coming up. So the plan is uh, next week. There's a lot of vibraphone and marimba music that's come out uh, suddenly, uh, both as leaders and then yeah, as part of ensemble. So I've got a, a collection. I'm going to pick the ones that I find most inspiring out for next week, and the week after that, I've got a bunch of clarinet. Uh, I think both regular clarinet and bass clarinet uh, things across a variety of styles of jazz. So I think, I, you know, clarinet was, you know, one of the early instruments of jazz that was featured strongly in uh, Dixieland music. And then, you know, it sort of disappeared uh, later on uh, once bebop came around, although there are some notable players, uh, you know, but we don't hear it enough. Uh, but recently there's been some... Uh, 
good clarinet recordings out. So I thought, well, I'm going to hear some of those too. Uh, so we'll start there. Cool. And who knows? I've got uh, a whole list of really unique world music uh, recordings uh, with all kinds of ethnic flavors. We've done any of those? We got to do some okay. world music. I got some world yeah. stuff, and I got a growing list of cool big band things too. So that's all mm. coming up uh, in. Uh, springtime before summer it'll be summer before we right. know it here in japan so uh, we'll get these things yeah. cranked out i'm still contemplating whether we want to do this new there's a new um uh album release of sibelius's all seven sibelius symphonies mm. uh by this hot young uh con- conductor uh, whose whose name i didn't bother looking up to get the pronunciation <laughs> of but it's uh let me see, let me see if i can try this now uh uh yeah, Klaus Mekela, or Makela. I don't know how to say the A with the umlaut over it in Finnish, but uh, this might be worth going through. It's going to take time, though, because we got to hear seven, seven symphonies. symphonies. Oh. But uh, yeah, maybe in a few weeks' time, we may do yeah. that and a few others. We'll, we'll see what happens. Fan, uh, I so. think we've, it's it's kind of a big release, and I would like to kind of hear it and kind of yeah. give you our take on it. So we that might do that. Good. Yeah. Well, wait, wait about a month, a month and a half for that, I'd say. Okay. Yeah, all give right. me time to listen to all seven of them. Yeah, you're going to have to listen to them. Yeah. All right. Well, there you have it. It's been episode 60 of Adult Music, podcast with music for the mature mind. Uh, once again, please do like and subscribe on whatever platform uh, you're listening to us on. We'll have this episode out on Monday morning in Japan, which will still be Sunday night in the States, and the... Uh, playlist for next week will be up shortly after that uh, so please do look for that on Deezer uh, check us out on our new Facebook page too you can find us there Adult Music Podcast or write to us Adult Music Podcast all one word at gmail.com with any uh, comments or questions as always uh, thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our logo with that uh, nice neon on our CD brick wall. The neon glow. The neon glow. Uh, yeah. Looks good. Stands out when we get up in those browsing categories. And that'll about do it for this episode. Any final uh, comments there, Mike? No comments. No comments. Just uh, lamenting the stop of construction of my cooling tower. <laughs> yeah, let's hope <laughs> the yen situation uh, improves. Yeah. But until then... yeah. Daddy needs some CDs. Come on. <laughs> Bank of Japan. Until then, Yen strong. take your mind off from things uh, with some sexy ladies, and I'm going to be back with some good vibrations for you next week. Uh, a lot yeah. of mallet work with uh, marimba and vibraphone. Uh, so until then, uh, keep listening, and we'll see you again for episode 61 next week. Mm-hmm.